0: so so uh, open to anything technological advance that they'll like line up to get their arms chipped for their national ID and that kind of thing which is freakish but but anyway that's happening but the point i wanted to make that i liked i think it was michael serion said that you don't have to chip people their vibrations getting so low and they're getting so weakened and so lost that they're already behaving like automatons. Thanks for joining us for the final installment and the wrap-up of the Unabomber Manifesto and an introduction of a couple of new topics i hope you enjoy if you are uh, so inclined to follow along on the show notes you can browse on over to synthesismeaning.me and we'll catch you on the other side episode lined up for you tonight, episode three, we will wrap up the Unabomber Manifesto and maybe take a little time in episode four to debrief and kind of reflect on the high points and the salient points. So today we'll only get time to actually finish the manifesto. We won't spend a lot of time on the takeaways. We'll do that in January. Yes, a good lineup here. I I have learned something actually. <laughs> I guess uh, I shouldn't be surprised, but I I was a little surprised on a couple of fronts. That uh, like I'll make a casual comment or or a listener will make a casual comment and and I'll try and or a, and I or I decide I'll make a casual clarification and and I try and make a short point about a fairly deep topic and it's and I realize I have to research it further and further and further and further. And, you know, some of these things have a, well, there's no bottom. It's a bottomless pit of depth. So I have to, like, be a bit disciplined about how far to to, to go with the first first go-round. I'm inter- introducing a couple of very deep topics, but I've tried to keep it at an introductory uh, level, which is where I'm at. And um, so we'll, we'll see what the feedback's like, but I'm sure that these are topics that we'll chew on for the coming uh, few months, for sure. But anyway, standard, uh, standard format, we will do the tarot poll. I, have a, I actually do have a couple of announcements and a couple of recommendations, and, uh, and then these two topics, and then we'll get, get into the, the reading. I Most of these films, so this is now the, the third slide, I've got th- five films I'm recommending. I've been just, I guess, I maybe this happens to everybody, but I'm actually able now to experience more depth in terms of the metaphorical level of some of these films as they're happening. Usually it takes me a long time to reflect, or I have to watch it a few times before I or, or I go read someone's analysis and then go back and watch it and see it see it fresh but it's nice I'm starting to I'm starting to um, see some depth in these pictures and these five each one of them I was really pleased with I guess I'm getting most of these tips from Mark Passio's podcasts somewhere around the number 150 range I think is where I am maybe 160 But Time Machine, that was a remake, so people that are into classic films probably are familiar with it. But the 2004 version of Time Machine was was really excellent in terms of, well, causality and uh, history and choices and that kind of thing. I, I, I really enjoyed that ride. The Giver is a film with many, many big stars in it. Uh, both of these, by the way, actually almost all of them, with the exception of the last two, I guess the first three, um, I, did, I knew very little about actually, which is amazing, with these big stars in them. But um, The Giver was uh, it was a really good ride for me. I really enjoyed it. Reminded me of um, what's that one called? In- Insurgents. You know that that whole series, Divergent and Insurgent. Uh, that trilogy. Well, The Giver had some of the same themes, just one film, and it was excellent. It was basically a futuristic community. I won't I won't ruin it, but they tried to eliminate the negatives. So they tried to eliminate evil, the choices for evil, really. Uh, but they found out that they were throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So I, I don't need to go into it any further, but that is a really, really rich concise metaphorical truth there. Noah, uh, Russell Crowe's version. I I think that's the first version I've ever watched of of the Noah story. Uh, I thought it was excellent. And I think there was a lot of, well, I guess it's been a long time since I (laughs) studied that story, but I think there are a lot of accuracies, but it was a really just, I'll just very, very superficially to tell you at the, at the surface, um, Russell Crowe was aligned with natural law. He's one with nature, and you know, as as Noah, he's chosen by nature to protect the future of humanity. I mean, everybody knows <laughs> the story, but but um, but the contrast with fittingly the industrialized society that had that had basically polluted the earth, quote unquote. Um, it was really, really well done. It was really well done. And in this story, the industrialized society were meat eaters and Noah's family were plant-based diets so there' a there was a bunch of themes that were interesting contrasts there. Um, unbreakable. I knew that one very well when it hap- when it came out in the old days and uh, I might have seen it maybe once more since then, but that was actually a tip from a friend and it did not disappoint. I mean, if you watch it from the perspective that everyone has a superpower and it's very easy to grow up and not know that and not realize that you've got some unbelievable gift that uh, can really help help with uh, humanity, <laughs> um, It was really, really cool to look at it through that lens. And then Unstoppable, I just watched it last night, actually. And uh, I, I knew there were some metaphorical truths in there because of the numerology the uh, filmmaker used. But I think, I might have to check on this, but I think that director was killed soon after that film. I think, like Stanley Kubrick, he he gave away too much in that film. I've kind of had a hunch, but I've never been able to see it. But I saw it more clearly last night I still don't see Entirely What he was giving away But I, I think it was I think it was completely in the face of, of the Hollywood agenda At the time That's what it looked like to me Because all of the themes Were so positive Collaborative uh, There's really It's really um, It's really a theme about Agape Which is a A word we'll talk about in the in the Q and A, but um, yeah, every single it was a it was a good movie just on the surface, and then the metaphorical side of things was was really rich. Anyhow, I won't give any more away than that, but uh, I'd recommend any one of those from a metaphorical truth perspective. In terms of announcements, I actually had a chance to review the Jordan Peterson Rise of Jordan Peterson documentary. Produced by Holding Space Films. So I've got the link here on the fourth slide. And I got to meet the filmmakers. This was in Dubai a couple weeks ago. And we had maybe 12 or 14 people out. A real mix of fans and people that, ha- that don't know anything about them at all. Um, and a real mix of, you know, there were some people that that knew of him and were wary of his image. But um, it was such an richly enjoyable night, I can't even tell you, because I guess it just felt sort of purposeful, like we are getting in touch with, with a movement that happened in 2018. And I don't know, because it all kind of happened on YouTube, it never felt real, you know? You're kind of connecting with this community on your own. So, to sit with the filmmakers and watch their film, and then they facilitated a Q&A afterward um, about the making and about the launching of the film, and their calling to, to connect with the whole topic, uh, it was really, really rich, as the best word I can think of, um, because... Even though everyone was all over the shop politically and all over the shop in terms of their awareness of the topic, uh, everybody that was... I mean, the the Q&A was uh, people, diverse group, talking like caring about a topic that matters to the world together. It was really rich that way. That, um, you know, his, his work cuts way below sort of the effects of the day with uh, the politics and the right versus left and the gun control and all of the issues that we get distracted. And he's operating, even though he gets pulled into some of those, he's operating at a few layers below that. And so to have a group sort of uh, debating a little bit uh, their reactions to the film uh, right after watching it um, and hearing some of the anecdotes from the filmmakers on the journey it was really really fantastic so i would recommend it uh the filmmakers have agreed to come on to the podcast uh whenever i can set it up so that won't be difficult to plug the film and talk about their journey they're um they're very engaging and their whole experience has been uh has been rich for them so so we, we can arrange that probably january or february but i encourage you to to check it out and um The reason I connected with the whole thing was their website. There's a place you can offer to host a home screening or host a screening in your area. And uh, so that was a very positive experience for me in Dubai. Um, Finally, I've been meaning to share this. This is a little bit of a a tangent, but um, there was an episode on the Michael Sarion podcast. Uh, It might be two years ago now where he, I don't know what caused him to do it, but it was was interesting. He kind of laid out four scenarios. I think it was on his podcast. Four scenarios, his predictions of where we're headed, and the four possible scenarios that are going to play out from here. And they weren't good. None of them were good. I think the Wild Bunch scenario was the least bad, (laughs) if I can say it that way, was the least, uh, and it's not good. You know, I gotta be frank. So I didn't fully, I wasn't enough in tune with the track we were on at the time to believe that it could be that bad, but I'm starting to see it more clearly, and I'm starting to believe that this is the best scenario to tune into. And the reason is, they basically did the right thing for the sake of doing the right thing by their own principles. This is a band of sort of uh, small-time thieves and bank robbers, but they, they violated their own principles, their own code, and they decided that they were willing to take on... Uh, I won't ruin it too much, but I will tell you a little bit about the scenario Um, they were willing to step into a Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid ending scenario uh, for their principles basically and I think that's the mindset I think actually that's the mindset that we need to take on each one of us um, personally that that, um, do the right thing for the sake of doing the right thing don't don't like wet the finger in the wind and try and read how much impact you can have or how much what you can solve or what difference you can make or don't have any of those rationalizations just figure out what the right thing to do is for you and then get behind that and uh and take what comes that's to me what the wild bunch scenario is and uh i think that if enough of us take that on we could really make a make a difference in the level of awareness out there. Uh, The reason I said the serenity prayer, I think the serenity prayer is a perfect example. If you hold up the well-known, famous serenity prayer that Sinead O'Connor made even more famous through her song and is famous in the 12 Steps for Alcoholics, if you look at that in its current form and you hold it next to the original version that started. You can see the fingerprints of the manipulators if you compare those two, those two prayers one side by each. Even though the, the, the famous one that's popular um, is nice, it's good actually, it's quite strong. It's nothing like, not nothing, but it's nowhere near the power of the original. Um, and, and to me the line that I always remember from that original was because it was, it was somebody taking a class from a preacher of some kind, pastor, I think. And the, it was a woman taking the notes in a class, and she quoted what he said. And one of the lines he said is, um, what it takes is moral will and imagination. And to me, that's it. That's uh, that's what's missing, and that's what we need, and that's what the, the Wild Bunch scenario was. So Wild Bunch, I, I don't know what year that was. I'm gonna say probably early eighties or seventies. It's a bit long. It's a bit it's a bit I think it's over two hours, maybe two and a half. And it takes a little time to get there <laughs> to build up. I mean, if you just think, think of yourself being corrupted by hedonism, losing your way and and compromising your values sometimes and compromising your principles sometimes and and getting yourself into a scenario where you got all the riches you were pursuing, and you feel terrible about the principles you compromised, and there's still time to confront the uh, the evil side, basically, and you decide to throw down the hedonism and re and return to your principles, and face what comes, and face the dark side. I thought that that was, it took me a long time to fully digest the, the, um, the message, but to me that's, that was the message in that film, and, and, uh, and I think that's the mindset. I honestly think that's the mindset. It'll take time, I'm sure, for you to, to agree with me that things are that dark, but, um, but holy, there's work to do. So moral will and imagination is what's missing in my opinion. Okay, so the lineup. Uh, like I said, there were, there were a couple of just passing comments, literally. And I guess one or two of the questions that we take up that um, th- that, uh, that I thought I could, in a few bullet points, offer an introductory concept, but I really had to <laughs> to do some digging to get my own head straight to the point that I was comfortable talking about it and to get the materials at the right level for myself to speak to. So um, the first one, we'll get into it more detail, was I said uh, in the last episode that I thought Peterson and Passio were well-integrated individuals. And I actually stand by that, but I really need to define what I meant by that. And, um, and a, there's a f- number of different... Angles to defining that, so we'll get into that. Um, so that and that the second bullet is directly related to the first bullet, so those are the same, essentially the same topic. Tarot deck is right here. Oh my God, there was out of reach here for a second. Okay, so let's do the tarot. I'm, I'm dying of curiosity on this one. Just as I was starting to record, it was uh, nine eleven p.m which is like a super positive uh numerological signal to me anyway Uh, okay here we go let me get this uh, deck sorted and we'll do a proper shuffle make sure they're all uh, there and we'll do a proper shuffle and we'll go from there all right (laughs) i'm gonna shuffle thoroughly even more than last time and last time was plenty all right what's it going to be december 17th 9:11 p.m. is when the recording started Let's see what we've got here all right poker cut here we go chariot card that is fantastic. One of my personal favorites. And Chariot card, I think of Chariot card as uh, man and technology, which is like unbelievably fitting. So let's have a quick uh, quick read of this one, uh, which is Major Arcana. You know, the, the last two were, were in the Minor Arcana. This one's in the Major Arcana. Number seven, card number seven. Uh, the Chariot. Sucker, triumph, providence, also war, trouble, presumption, vengeance, reversed, riot, quarrel, dispute, litigation, defeat. Uh, I'm quite sure the chariot card is in our uh, tree of life, Um, so I'll read that one more time. That's extremely brief, but... uh, a major card. There's so much more to it. Uh, if you're not familiar with the cards. It's basically like two sphinx at the front. A man on a chariot. Starry knight behind. With a uh, kingdom in behind. Sort of like a Roman. A Roman chariot. A chariot riding away from his kingdom. Into battle. Uh, Sucker, Triumph. Providence. Also. War. Trouble presumption, vengeance, if it's reversed, if it's upside down, riot, quarrel, dispute, litigation, and defeat. All right, it was upside right, so that's, that's it, that's our card for this show, and how appropriate, man, and technology. So yeah, we'll do the Unibomber three, I mentioned that, and we'll get into the Q&A, and that's it, and have a few, uh, Good answers for you and a couple of new questions for you. The first is just passing topic here is that uh, I just kind of want to try and convince you of my realization (laughs) with a lot of help (laughs) and a lot of time to get to this point that, um, that knowledge is the answer, is the cure that we're after. So let's say that you realize that you're an adult, but you've got some psychological childishness. I mean, you can see yourself. You have childish uh, cravings. You have childish moods. You have childish behaviors, childish antics. You just start to become aware that not all of you is the age that you are (laughs) so if you accept that that psychological infancy is the major problem of the day um, then you just think well what are the you know what are the typical cures that people well one is hedonism people try and pursue distractions and comforts one is uh well could go on and on but burying yourself in your work is another one meditation you know the new age and and another i mean less common now but as religion but take any one of those solutions and try and imagine try to imagine meditation try and imagine meditating yourself out of psychological infancy i mean meditation you know some integration some observing your thoughts, those kinds of steps, always good, always good to have some distance between your thoughts, focus on your breathing, get into your body, all of those really good things, but does it make any sense to you that meditation alone could cure someone of psychological infancy, to me that's just an obvious no. Prayer isn't going to do it. Uh, burying yourself in the minutia of your profession isn't going to do it. On and on and on, trying to fill your life with distractions, hedonism, vices, it's not gonna, you're not going to get anywhere. I mean, the only possible solution is teaching yourself how we got to this and what exactly we're in. Like what exactly is happening around us and why? To me, that's to me that's one of the most convincing um, thought experiments to conclude that knowledge actually is the answer for our current condition. And likewise, on the next um, slide, you can see that uh, just a funny, a funny picture I grabbed that um, or I created actually so if you conclude that psychological infancy is some of your problem your personal problem not just the world <laughs> at large and you claim that being a good parent is one of your top priorities in your life then it just seems so obvious that those are in total contradiction that you're choosing, you know, if, unless you're actually pursuing the knowledge and work it takes to snap yourself out of that state, then you're actually choosing on a daily basis to be a child psychologically. So if you're burying, so if you're taking all your, your spare time and motivation and burying yourself in, in vices or in empty pursuits, uh, you're essentially choosing to continue and propagate that state, uh, which is in direct conflict with being a good parent. So I don't know what age, <laughs> what age your kids are going to surpass you in their psychological state. M- you know, myself too, I'm not immune to this, but uh, at all, at all, uh, I think it's interesting. I mean, maybe somewhere between 11, 12, 13, 14, your kids probably could pass you if you spend your entire adult life pursuing willful ignorance, essentially. So that's my little um, insight of the period for myself. Um, Now, this is one of the two topics that I wanted to get into. Uh, I think it's a fascinating topic. And and I mean, I'm playing with this in my own mind as well, because, um, well, first of all, Peterson was such a global phenomenon, and Mark Passio's got a strong following, but he's a niche. Passio is a niche, 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 niche guy. And there's certain things that he teaches probably turn people off, but for the most part, it just takes some work. It takes some work to get into the Passio channel and get caught up to where he's at and understand... Why he's focusing on the things he's focusing, and why he's saying it, and the way he's saying it. Um, so, I just thought it would be very interesting to compare the two, because even though Peterson was a controversy, he uh, <clears throat> he was a mainstream phenomenon. He was definitely a mainstream phenomenon. That I mentioned that we need to do. I personally need to do a deep dive on is. Um, Are there two contradicting views between, I don't think, on the surface it would look to most people (laughs) that they're contradictory views. Passio's view on hierarchy and Peterson's view on hierarchy. However, it takes some peeling back and I I don't think they're incompatible. But I think it's a really, really um, important and uh, helpful nuanced onion (laughs) to peel back the 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 gray lines between where something goes from a competent well, from a from a hierarchy that's natural and healthy to a authority that's unnatural and unhealthy so we'll get into that um i also think this is just poetic i guess but if i was going to take The strongest criticisms you could take. If I, if, if, um, from what I know of Mark Passio's work now and what I know of Peterson's work now, I could take, well, I, I think I've, I've, I've mentioned in a previous episode that that series with Peterson debating Harris over six, uh, encounters, uh, there was actually a seventh, believe it or not. There was a seventh where the, neither one of them were in attendance, but their ideas were being... The argument happened with people with people representing their different points of view. This is before they went on the four-event roadshow. But anyway, so the six meetings of the two men, Peterson and Harris, uh, which was a fascinating journey. But to me, it, it took until the third or fourth... Major events it was almost near the end that Peterson to me, scored his strongest blows and and what those were, one of them was you haven 't contended with the fundamental issues okay so that was his his point against Harris that Harris was still operating at a very shallow level relatively in terms of um, like he wasn't getting right. <laughs> if the religious or the spiritual layer is at the bottom, you know, Harris was still like three or four layers above that where he was analyzing and functioning and thinking. And he hadn't, he definitely seemed, even though he's unbelievably intelligent and uh, good hearted guy with uh, still to this day lots to contribute. He just, to me, he wasn't coming to the plate with the big, Thinkers of the past, and for that reason, uh, like like Jung and uh, Freud and Nietzsche, uh, for that reason, he just didn't have the fundamentals. He didn't have the fundamental grounding. He sort of was grounded in in a modern, even though he you know he he could see a lot of the flaws in the modern academia, but he his schooling is fairly modern. To me, I don't think I don't know. It didn't seem like he was a student of some of the greatest thinkers, so he would rarely cite um, the great thinkers. And then the other point was that Harris's worldview, he wanted to have a scientific-based morality or a man-made morality. Um, and Peterson's one of his strongest points was, "You can't. the world needs more." than a set of man-made rules. They need the narrative. They need those biblical-type stories where you push the polarities to the limit. And uh, and it's, you know, instead of you shouldn't do this, you should do that, you shouldn't do this, it's more like create a character that you admire and, and then tell a story about how they decide to live, and then that's going to inspire people rather than rather than, like a two-dimensional set of morals, create a three- or four-dimensional character that you can be inspired by. Uh, to me, though, that was though, those were two of Peterson's strongest points, but the ironic part is, I think, now that I know Passio's work better, I think he could say the very same thing to Peterson, believe it or not. I think that as deep as Peterson went with Maps of Meaning, and I don't think... I think there's very little of Peterson's positions, if any, that are technically invalid. I just think he didn't quite get to the depth that Mark has gone to or identify the causes to the level that Mark has. Peterson was definitely focused on causes. But, um, but I really don't think he got as far down into the fundamentals. And he also... Um, Passio's worldview which is we'll get into it when we get into this uh, enlightenment debate but um, Passio's worldview actually has a much more compelling story I mean he has a much better idea of the dark sides that are operating, the manipulators the social engineers and for that reason it's much more motivating to come out of a Passio seminar uh, and have a will to action, basically. So we'll get into this a little bit further. But um, the other part, and I think I can get in on the next slide, is drawing the lines between the hierarchy. Let's see. I think I've got a better a better uh, list on the next slide that we can get into. But fundamentally, the the, the fundamental point is, well, essentially no masters, no slaves, uh, Passio's worldview. Um, you're never, ever, ever, ever in a position where you can hand your moral agency over to another. So you can never, ever, ever say, I was just following orders and, and do some wrong deed that you know to be wrong. Um, that's never okay. So, uh, but that's just the that's just the surface, scratching the surface we'll get into it a little further in a second so um this is the this is really it might be the fundamental teaching one of the fundamental teachings besides natural law i guess natural law is the positive side and this is the negative side this is the side that we're trying to avoid and uh, natural law is the is the side we're trying to trying to move towards but um yeah, so that's why I think this hierarchy discussion is is important. So let's, let's get into it a little bit. Um, uh, human dignity. So we actually have an innate sense, a very fundamental innate sense, when we think that our human dignity has been violated. I mean, most of us, I guess you can probably have that beaten out of you, but, I mean, when I say beaten, I mean... Traumatized out of you, but um, I think generally it it works as a good guide. You actually know when you're when you're being your dignity is being violated, and you know when you're violating someone else's dignity. So I think that's actually probably a very good test of when the situation is uh, moral to immoral, and. So, so, I mean, the one example I've got here, slide 11 for those reading, is just retail. Okay, so th- we'll just go through a bunch of different scenarios where you're playing a role. There's each, there are roles, then you're interacting, and the interaction is voluntary. So you've voluntarily taken on these roles, and so the interaction is voluntary, and the uh, roles are somewhat defined. There's a certain guideline for each role that you're playing. So in the example of retail, that the person, the, the customers coming in voluntarily, they're parting with their money voluntarily. They're, s- they're presumably getting um, some additional value from the good or service beyond what how the level they vo- value their their money, and um, and they're in that situation voluntarily. And if there's something not right they can always take their business elsewhere. I mean, that's just the simplest, most pure example. Uh, likewise, you presume that on the other side, if, if the customer violates the code of conduct for a customer, that the staff has some recourse. They can, they can escalate, or if it, or if the case is severe, they can always quit. Of course, that in a number of these examples I'll go through, there are situations where the cost of leaving the situation is so bad that it's, that it's very, very, uh, it doesn't feel voluntary anymore. And I realize that. Next slide, slide 12. So the question really is where is the line between the idea of a competency based hierarchy, which is what Peterson is saying, that hierarchies are a necessary part of organizing ourselves just the same way that lobsters organize themselves and that's the one that, that made him famous wolf packs and chimp troops um, the lobster one is about uh, that just like humans I mean you couldn't think of two species further apart but just like humans they their serotonin levels are adjusted based on where they view themselves as part of the hierarchy and not only that um, antidepressants actually work on lobsters. That's kind of the, the, the point that pe- made Peterson, uh, that was one point that, <laughs> that made him controversial because there's this concept out there that we're all victims of the, uh, the, the patriarchy. And, um, I mean, he's got another good point, which is, well, are we talking about the structure or the people sitting in the, in the because patriarchy suggests it's a, it's a male dominated situation, but you have hierarchies in, in nursing and in university and in uh, uh, hospitals and all kinds of hierarchies that have women in the posts. Is, I mean, so is, is that no longer an issue or is it, are we actually, when we say patriarchy, what we mean is the the actual organizing structure? So I think, I think it's just a, uh, there's a lot more to it, but he's basically saying that hierarchies do tend toward corruption. When He means corruption. He means like nepotism. Um, they start to get based on power. Decisions get based by on power or favoritism, and um, and so the competency aspect of it is always at risk f- from being whittled away. And so you need a check and balance in to keep to keep the hierarchies honest. Now. Mark Passio's point is that all authority is immoral and when he says that he's talking about anybody that claims to have authority over another. I mean that's an automatic violation of your dignity if someone claims they've got authority over you as a person. So I think that they don't need to be incompatible but there are a lot of lines and scenarios that you have to think through before you get it clear and, I, and I've, I've just started it here. so. I hope that there's a fiction out there or there's some work that will help uh, help me uh, explore this concept further because I think it's really, really important. But let's just talk about, here's a fun one, quarterback, okay? You're in a high-pressure situation in a high-pressure game. For whatever reason, the quarterback's got to make the call of what the next play is. And uh, you've got a quarterback and a wide receiver. And the quarterback, I mean, obviously, they're both in the situation voluntarily, right? and they both have a role to play and the quarterback calls the play now there is absolutely nothing this is situational leadership this is a person that's taken on this role and everybody's agreed that that person has that role and they're in a situation and and he's in the posi- he's in the position to make that call so the wide receiver the only reason they might pipe up is if they think they've got information the quarterback doesn't have, like there's mud on the field, or there's something about the defense the quarterback doesn't know, or otherwise, I don't think anybody has any issue <laughs> with that situation, right? I mean, even then, even then you can understand in a pressure situation that you whatever, you probably have to run plays you're used to or whatever. You may not want to confuse matters in the scrum, or maybe you don't have time, or maybe it's noisy, you just can't have a whole long conversation about the nuances. The quarterback's got to make the call and the quarterback makes the call and nobody is violated. That's not authority. That's situational leadership. So think of another one, desert islands. Think of like 10 couples who are stranded on a tropical desert island or uh, volunteered, it <laughs> doesn't matter. They, they're on, in a desert island situation and the, uh, it's just paradise. And I mean some things you can imagine would happen is probably there'd be little clusters. Smaller groups might organize to help each other with certain tasks. Like maybe there's three or four get together and they decide to build all the same huts. And if they pool their abilities, they can, and, and agree on sort of the plots, they can go and build their own huts. And and that doesn't have to be governed. That can just be self-organizing. But maybe there's a situation there where, you know, the group decides they've got to get together and agree on waste disposal. So let's just, you know, let's just all agree that there's there's a certain way we want to handle the waste disposal thing so it doesn't become an issue. And let's just presume that in this situation you've got somebody that's an expert in tropical island waste disposal (laughs) management, okay, (laughs) who just happens to be. That person is going to be the natural leader and they're probably going to gather four or five of the other people that are interested in getting involved with that committee, and they'll agree on what is probably optimal for the situation, and then they'll try and sell it to the rest of the people on the island. And there's just nothing wrong with that, Um, especially if they're open for, uh, oh, we didn't think of that, we didn't think of, you know just because that person has those credentials doesn't mean they have the authority to dictate what exactly how it's going to get handled but they do have the situational leadership to lead and convince and and collaborate and agree and and get everyone to opt in yeah that's you know convince them that yeah that's probably the right, right way to handle that so um so that's just another example of situational leadership i think that the marriage example actually is another one of those ones that's a tough one just like retail if you've got somebody in a Low-level retail position—you often feel like that person really. The cost of switching for that person is is often so high that you don't consider that they they're in a voluntary situation. Um, same with marriage—the you know, the, it often for many marriages it gets to feel like it's no longer voluntary. But I thought that Peterson had a really good uh, guideline. So so take take a marriage that there's a married couple that's out in public and they always have the same issue let's just say they're in a restaurant and they always have (laughs) the same issue that they can't agree on how to agree on how to pick the table when they go out for dinner okay let's just make that one up and it's a scene it becomes a big conflict and a big scene and they don't even like the way they behave towards each other Peterson said you know you got to have a conversation around if this is not a voluntary partnership that we are voluntary stepping into on a daily basis, how would two grown adults appear in public if you're working out a, 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 a dispute uh, on that basis? I mean, there'd be a certain decorum <laughs> to that conversation. There'd be, there'd, be a, there'd be a collaboration. I mean, and once it goes beyond that, then just one of you is starting to behave like this isn't a voluntary arrangement, right? And so that's where that's where the um, the collaboration turns into some kind of a tyranny, if <laughs> if whatever through whatever means one person is feeling like they're not being treated like they're in this situation voluntarily, right? So that's just another example. Airport security is a good example. I, I, I mean, I have a very deep sense that my human dignity is violated, and, and so are my kids when we go through the—I mean, there's just no reason. There's no reasoning going on there. You can't reason with that protocol. It makes absolutely no sense the way it is, the way it is today, and it's a complete violation. Both the technology they're using and the methods they're using— uh, for so-called security. None of it makes any sense. And it's a complete violation. So that's a, an example of bumping in to the immoral authority that P, that Passio is talking about. And they will try and justify it by saying that they're just following orders, which is never okay. Even though they're carrying out immoral acts, they're, they're going to claim uh, just following orders. And then they'll also say, don't worry, you've got a choice. You'll say, okay, well, you know, I'll I opt out. <laughs> they say, yeah, you have a choice. You just can't fly. So they're suggesting that they've got authority over the skies. Okay, that's a, that's a you're interacting with an agency that believes they have authority over the sky. So, that, so reason gets dropped, okay? They'll say, they'll cite the EU ruled on this or the whatever, whatever, <laughs> the U.S. government ruled on this. And then if push comes to the shelf, they'll say, uh, well, that's fine. you you can choose not to fly. no problem. So they think that they have authority over you in that situation and that they've got authority over the skies. okay And so it comes down to reason. To me, that situation comes down to reason. First of all, you have no opt out. you have no opt out. there's the, if it to me if it was commercial, okay, let's just let's take the the alternative. If the airlines, or the airline that you're flying on, uh, hire security specialists, and they decide commercially what the appropriate level of security is to protect their assets and and protect their passengers, then I could be convinced because there's reason there. There's, there's somebody that's reasoned through, okay, here's a sensible level of interference that is the right level of security for us given our History with security risks and so on. Okay, (laughs) and what's at stake? So I can totally be convinced that the airline hires a a security expert and that's working for them and is is dealing with their passengers as if they're customers. By the way, Um, and then you've got a you've got reason and you've got negotiation. Okay, because then it costs them a lot if you say, okay, fine, I'll go to your competitor. No problem. They don't have obtrusive Offensive, um, extremely uh, uh, over-the-top security measures that are completely have no reason underneath them. So you can, you can, to me, I could easily see a situation where the airlines are managing that to an appropriate level, to the right level. But when you say there's a government agency who has authority over the skies and the airlines don't have to agree to the measures and the taxpayers don't have to agree to the measures, then what do you have? You've got the immoral authority that Mark Passio is talking about. Okay, so I think that's a perfect example. Um, There is one example here that I guess there's a situation like a a fire alarm in an elementary school. Now somebody can kind of declare that they are the person that is the expert in that situation and knows the protocols and you know, like this is not a time for convincing or collaboration. This is a time for somebody to take the position that they know. But still, that's a form of situational leadership. It's just a it's just a form where you can't you can't tolerate a whole lot of back and forth. However, if something does come up and, you know, hey there's a back door that's opened up over here or whatever, or we think there's danger down there, you know, you still have to listen to it still has to be a two-way street. Okay, summer internships. I I've had lots of positive experiences. I listed GM here. I did have a GM summer internship that um, was in an extremely long history of labor relations. We had a very structured collective bargaining, I and mean, it was extremely structured uh, because the management uh, tend tend towards tyrannizing their people. So the The workforce had to um, band together. I mean, that's the the history there. So they needed collective bargaining to to balance the playing field. Um, But my point of this one is you get into that situation as an apprentice, so, third year engineering apprentice. um, I mean, you're grateful for the position, it is voluntary. But people are going to be asking you to do probably menial things because you're a low-level person and you're trying to learn. So, I mean, there's a certain humility. You can have humility and you can be an apprentice and you can even run for coffees, okay, without losing dignity. Like as long as your human dignity is not being violated, there's nothing to me immoral about the situation. It's a fair trade. When you're a junior, you're grateful for the chance to be trained, and you're dr- grateful for the chance to have access to senior people with skills that are willing to share them with you. Same thing with the s- software startup. I mean, it's just a slightly different environment. It's, uh, it's a knowledge-based environment. But th- there's, there's nothing wrong with doing the menial tasks. I know it can get abusive in, in both cases, but just fundamentally – on its own, in theory, it doesn't. And my experience, it doesn't need to be uh, a violation. Same goes for. I worked in construction crews, and I literally in the GM example, I didn't fetch coffees, <laughs> but in this construction crews, that was part of the deal. When you're the junior person on the crew, and you're a student, and these guys are professionals. Uh, they work all year round. You're just you're just joining them for the summer, and you're trying to ramp up and be useful on a crew. Yeah, you 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 get the coffees for the first until there's another new guy, basically. And uh, it's done very respectfully, in my experience. Anyway, there wasn't, I mean, there's ribbing and teasing and hazing, but um, that doesn't necessarily mean abuse either. So I just think that, um, I guess you have to have a very good sense of your own human dignity to, to know where the line is, but there's nothing wrong with situational leadership and voluntary hierarchy to me, competency-based hierarchy. I think that's completely okay. So Peterson's point with the wolf pack and the chimp troop is that they don't work if they're corrupt. So if the if the alpha chimp tries to lead by brute force alone and tries to mistreat the females or mistreat his lieutenants, uh, alpha chimp two and alpha chimp three will just take him out when he's not looking. We'll just tear him to shreds. So th- even in the animal kingdom, hierarchies, the natural hierarchies, are based on uh, competence. And you can't abuse it or you lose it, basically. So um, it's collaborative, situational leadership. Now, maybe somebody, you know, it doesn't mean in the case of the chimp troop, that, uh, the pers- that person, <laughs> that chimp is in charge. Um, once they earn that post, they're in charge. and. Until they lose it, but um, basically, it's their leadership style has got to be somewhat diplomatic, or that, or it won't last long. Essentially, so it's got to be functional. You can't be a tyrant, even in the animal kingdom. So, um, and the the reason I use the desert island example is you need some organizing structure. I just wanted to paint the example that you need some kind of organizing structure um, to. To, to organize yourselves and manage, uh, and so you, you know to, to say that there's something evil about hierarchy in its in its nature, I I think I'm completely on board with Peterson, and I don't think uh, I don't think Passy would have an issue with competency-based hierarchies. The issue is the authority part when they think they have authority over your human being, and that's where you lose your dignity. That's that. Yeah. So this apprentice idea. Um, so I've got junior people that I'm working with that won't take any input of any kind from anybody. They th- they think it they think it's all tyrannical. They think apprenticing is tyrannical, or they think that whatever that their sources they want to learn from aren't the people that are around them or whatever it is. Um, and that's just infantile. I mean, that's just. But, I mean, they're going to just have to learn that. That's just inviting more ignorance like I, like I had in the chimp picture earlier. So um, I guess I'm just trying to explore where those lines are between the corrupt uh, hierarchy and the immoral authority and the situational leadership that's healthy and the competency-based hierarchy that's completely healthy and, and necessary. Okay, so that's that topic. The next one is integrated. So I used the term integrated in the last episode. And the image I had in my mind when I said that word was this magician image right here. And what I was thinking when I said that was that the magician has his left side and his right side. He's got his sacred feminine and his sacred masculine integrated. And not only that, but he's living in alignment with that integration. So what he's, what he's manifesting in with his labors and his behaviors and his speech, is an integrated, uh, is a, is a a fruit of an integrated perspective. So that's what I meant when I said that. Now somebody's pointed out that there are many ways to interpret that. So we'll get into that a little in the in the next slide actually. But I've got two pictures here. One is just the, the image of integrating those two pillars, and one is the image of the man in Tiananmen Square standing in front of the tank as a perfect example of right action. That's somebody who not only has their left side and their right side nicely integrated, has the courage to follow through on the most courageous act of right action. Um, and so I just think that's a very, very powerful image of a truly integrated individual who was tested and, and followed through. So the next page is um, now on slide 14. And um, as fate would have it, while I was searching to try and clarify this topic, uh, Mark Passio, I haven't seen this in any of his podcasts yet, but he's developed this uh, checklist of what the paradigm shift of True enlightenment needs to be. Believe this is in a streetwise, uh, streetwise spirituality um, presentation, and I'll just run through the list, and then I will score um, Peterson on this, so we can, <laughs> according to me, okay, in my judgment, and uh, we can see where the distinction is. But the number one knowledge of the occult. Okay, this is, these are the checklist. For, uh, for enlightenment, the true checklist for enlightenment, not the new age version. So the knowledge of the occult, knowledge that there are hidden sciences and spirituality and, and that you, you're you pursuing it or you, you're aware of it. Um, number two, knowing that truth and morality are objective. Okay, They're firm, just like gravity. Number three, knowing the characteristics of the higher self. Number four, knowing that the physical and spiritual aspects of our reality do not supersede each other. This is a fantastic point that um, you know some people will will promote the idea that we are just the physical, we're a third rock from the sun, or we're uh, we're just the, the the molecules that make us up, we're just the existence of what you can see, and others will say we're 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 just spirits meditating on our spirituality and waiting for the afterlife or whatever, but the 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 point of this point is that that you can't separate the two, that we are a physical being on a spiritual journey, and it's one and the same. Number five, release from ego identification. Number six, exercise of true discernment and judgment. Number seven, becoming mentally free of all false religions. To name a few of these false religions, you've got, uh, uh, well, authority (laughs) is one of them, scientism, you blindly believe in the... In the religion of sci- scientism, uh, money—you believe that you know th- that life is about money. That's a that's a faith as well. You know, traditional religions are false religions. Anything that asks you to believe on faith from a priest, uh, often you know, doctors, uh, pharmacists, scientists—all these—if if if somebody's asking you to distrust the facts and distrust your experience and just believe on faith, then you're, you're, you're interfacing with a false religion. Uh, government is another one. Uh, understanding that knowledge is never negative. Okay, that's along with that chimp picture earlier. Number nine, knowledge that the current human condition is slavery and the causal factors that have led to this condition. Um, and number ten, understanding and living in harmony with natural law. Okay, so since Passio drafted this list, it's probably not a surprise that he scores 10 out of 10 on this list. And not only that, he's actually teaching uh, in, a, in alignment with this list. So his right action is actually, is actually spreading the word and trying to help c- to, to um, educate others. Peterson is solid on most of them. But the one point that my... Uh, listener pointed out is that number one Peterson isn't there He, even though he's done an unbelievable uh, level of investigation into malevolence and he has a really excellent uh, lecture on uh, tragedy versus evil he's, he's completely in touch with evil and he understands it's out there and he understands that's, that's part of free will but he doesn't accept or talk about the occult, and um, he even he even talks sometimes in denial of the of the occult, and I just think that's just a necessary part of being a successful academic. I just don't think you can be a successful academic and and talk about the occult openly. I think he would have, I think that would have really interfered with his career, and so when it when you're, so I don't mean he made that conscious choice. I just mean that at some deep level. He could never look down that rabbit hole. Um, The other one that I think he fails on, because I think he's excellent on truth and morality, characteristics of higher self, absolutely. Physical, spiritual journey, absolutely. Release from ego identification, he's making every effort in that regard. I think he's incredibly humble. Uh, Exercising of true discernment and judgment, yes, he's quite good on that front as well. Mentally free of all false religions. I think he's a little bit weak on that one. He still seems to get drawn into politics as if it could, affect, could, could solve its own problem. Um, understanding that knowledge is never negative, I'd say he's on board with that. Knowledge that the human condition is, a, is in a state of slavery and the causal factors that have led to that. I would give him a flunking mark on that. I don't think he's in touch with that fact. Um, understanding and living in harmony with natural law. I think he's doing his level best. So, not, number nine and number one, I would give him a failing mark on. But everything else, he's uh, close. So, so you know, you could say that one's integrated and one's on the path to enlightenment. That would that would kind of get me off the hook. But anyway, I th- thought it was an important discussion to get into and and to clarify. The last point is that has crossed my mind um, this week is. Uh, inner child healing the inner child I mean is that I'm going to say that I think if you're pursuing these ten you're actually also by its nature you're also pursuing your own shadow work so you are integrating in Eckhart Tolle's words integrating the pain body or healing the inner child by virtue of pursuing this work so I think it's kind of implied um I don't think it makes sense to be number eleven on this list, because if that was the case, no one would ever be done, right? So if you had to, if you had to heal the inner child before you tackled one through ten, <laughs> then you, no one would ever get to one through ten. I believe. So I think the fact is that uh, living in alignment with these truths is actually, by its nature, healing healing your inner. Shadow is it is shadow work, but I, I would be very very open to input on that because I can't say that I've got a I've got it all figured out there. Okay, the next picture I really like um, I really like it as a visual and for those that are just listening through audio, um, it's three white lines. Okay, where the white line represents truth, and then you've got three colored waves. The bottom one is a very low vibration, so the wave only crosses the line on this page, the wave only crosses the line a couple of times. The next one is a medium vibration, so the wave crosses the line like five times. The top one is a high vibration. Uh, So the point basically is that when you're in a low vibration, I mean that's the checkerboard floor symbology that you see in uh, Freemasons. Uh, the a- and you 'll also see it on police uniforms that that's that 's someone saying that when you 're at that base level of consciousness you don't know when you're in alignment when you 're out of alignment with truth you 're stumbling in and out of alignment with truth um, due to your ignorance and that's where it, so it 's a real it 's a very mocking symbol to put on the on the cap of a police officer by the way but um but and, and Freemasons, they use it as a as a symbol of base consciousness, and so basically, when you as you raise your vibration, you're getting closer and closer to living, speaking, seeing truth as it is, and that's really what this visual is. is um, The caption is: Perception is not reality, but our work is to align the two. So, in other words, raise your vibration until you're almost your perception is almost reality. The next one is a couple of new age deceptions. Um I was there. I don't think I fully confessed this, but I was I was there. I was I was lost in the trap of the new age uh, heretic, the one that that she called out. I didn't go to the same degree that that she did in that book. I was there for probably 5 years and I think the fact is that some of those teachings are necessary. There's some of that journey that's really really helpful. But it's just the the getting stuck there. <laughs> That's where it becomes a cult or a religion, where you start to think that, okay, I've reached. I have all the knowledge I need now. I just need to meditate myself. (laughs) So the caption here is, enlightenment is only about changing yourself. Okay? That's basically saying the exact opposite of the serenity prayer from earlier. But that's basically saying... That I can rise above. I can see terrible things happening and I just need to get my perspective to the point where, where I don't feel an urge to do anything about it. <laughs> okay? that's, like, that's like a drug, right? That's just, that's just new age taking a drug to sedate you into uh, a passive existence of just allowing that the most heinous things happen and just meditate above it. Uh, detach. Right? It's just, it's totally corrupting. It's just trying to turn you into a uh, a useless pacifist. And the, uh, but, but don't get me wrong. I mean, I think there is a place for that, for those teachings. That's, that's half the brain, really. I mean, that's the, that's the getting in touch with peace and love and harmony and breathing and witnessing and keeping space between you and your thoughts. All of that is extremely powerful and helpful as one piece in your armor. Um, the other one is uh, that, th- that another New Age deception is the end goal is to feel good all the time. So, you know, Syrian babies are getting cluster bombed with drone strikes, and you're just supposed to meditate on that until it doesn't bother you anymore, you know? Okay, so next, next uh, couple images are, um, is this idea that if it makes you feel bad, then you shouldn't look there. OK, oh, I'm glad I, I remember this. So I, I won't go into it too much. But when I was talking about discernment last episode, w- one expression that works for me is a mind control fence. OK, w- when you know you're bumping into one of your own mind control fences, you have a really heartfelt, some kind of inner urge or interest to look into something. OK, a topic or write about something or take some kind of an action like you know that's coming from a very good part of you and yet somewhere in your head you're bumping into some resistance that's convincing you not to do it okay to me that's a mind control fence you've got your soul is screaming from deep down within you to to do to do what's right to to wake up and do what's right and there's some mind control fence that's already been plotted there that's keeping you from from even opening that book or or uh Uh, Or writing that blog post or what-have-you or going to do that speaking engagement So the but the current the situation with these two slogans Are saying is that the truth of the current human condition should make you uncomfortable? So there was a time when you were 10 11 12 13 14 That some truths about the way that we handle Christmas Would have been upsetting right? Um, now if you've got a child that's 20 that still doesn't want to understand the truths of some of the traditions at Christmas, I mean, that's somebody that's trying to stay a child, right? So childlike is charming for children. They're, they're absolutely charming. Childish, adult, is, is a big problem and dangerous. So this is another New Age deception. So this is all related to that concept of integrated because integrated brought me to the topic of enlightenment and enlightenment brought me to the topic of truth. Okay, So this one is, again, another New Age deception around truth. And it's solipsism. Solipsism is the belief that your reality is relative, that you've got, uh, it's got a beautiful constellation here with me, at the center, the, the, the big, the sun is the me and rotating around is my stuff, stuff about me, stuff I hate. This is, this is how it seems to me. The, the, the millennials at work see the world and they see that, <laughs> uh, it just, it's just so it's self-absorbed. I mean, I've had myself absorbed life stages, but, but, um, but uh, this is this is like rampant. Uh, so uh, the other ones are just basically prioritizing truth in your life. Um, and this is an example of how not to live. Okay, Solipsism is the, probably one of the greatest evils in terms of belief systems. Because as soon as you think your reality is relative and it's just how you look at things. And right and wrong are relative and you can make different people can make it up. Then then now your care for the harm of others goes right out the window because you can always rationalize that that's not your circus, that's not your monkeys. So being awake, this is Mark Passio's definition, being awake means, and which I subscribe to, knowing that the truth is singular and objective and that truth exists independently from our perception of it. That's the primary point. And then he's got a great definition of truth, in my opinion. Truth is objective, meaning that it is not based on the perceptions of human beings which are capable of wavering. Truth is unwavering. It is simply that which is. It is that which has occurred in the past and that which is occurring in the present. That which is. I think that's a great definition of objective truth. And that's, and believing in objective truth is, is the exact opposite of this concept of solipsism. Okay, so then this led me to, because in the integrated comment, I wanted to use the symbolism of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, because I think that that's a nice one that we're all kind of used to, our Holy Spirit. That the Father is the sacred masculine, the Holy Spirit is the sacred feminine, and the Son represents right action in the world in service to truth. Okay? So when I when I wanted to go look for that image, then I... Then it, became that you know that's another expression of the trivium and the trivium really is a uh, i mean it's unbelievable how much i don't know about the next topic which is the trivium and the quadrivium i'll just i'll just flash it now and ho- and we'll get into it deeper in the future but these are this this is the fundamental learning method to learn how to educate yourself in alignment with truth essentially and the, and the trivium is the, the three, okay, so these are the seven liberal arts. The trivium and the quadrivium come together to, to be the seven liberal, liberal arts, which is what liberal, liberal arts colleges were, were founded on. And this is a topic that Peterson has railed against, that the liberal arts are going away in modern academia. So the trivium is logic, the art of thinking, grammar, the, the art of inventing and combining symbols, Rhetoric, the art of communication. So this is so fundamental that I don't know what age, probably our parents' age, they were probably on top of this by the age of 10 or 12. They probably knew what these were by the age of 10 or 12. And then when they went to liberal arts colleges, they would learn uh, ancient languages like Latin and Greek, and they would structure their thinking and learning along these lines, I believe. But these were long gone, my time. I mean, this, this concept and these terms, no idea. Never, never, never come across it in my entire formal education, and I'm quite educated formally. Uh, the quadrivium uh, is arithmetic, the theory of number. Music, the application of the theory of number. That's discrete quantity. Okay, those two fall under discrete quantity and the quadrivium is called the four arts of quantity pertaining to matter under continuous quantity you have geometry the theory of space and astronomy the application of the theory of space okay so i'll flip to the next page because i think they come together powerfully i'm now on slide 21 in the in the 345 triangle that we all were introduced to in trigonometry in high school um they, they come together nicely in this fundamental picture where you've got the trivium down the left, you've got grammar, logic, rhetoric, and you've got the quadrivium across the horizontal, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy, and then across the hypothesis, you've got the five senses, taste, smell, touch, hearing, sight. Those, that picture, to me, is the fundamental how to think and how to interface with the physical world. And if you, I, I, I'm gonna guess, I haven't been exposed to this formally, but I'm going to say that if you can train a child to master this frame of thinking, then they are extremely well-suited to go and educate themselves in alignment with truth and understanding of the physical reality that we're existing in. I don't know much about the Waldorf uh, learning I know it's extremely self-driven uh, I'm curious if there's any of this baked into that curriculum I know it's uh, yeah it's supposed to be quite creative driven creative intelligence anyway I'm sure that the old traditional like one-room schoolhouses that North America was kind of founded on I'm positive not positive but prob- quite confident that they were probably basing their their curriculum. On, on this, on these two things, trivium and quadrivium. Okay, enough on that for now. Um, but that's basically how to. That's the whole discussion of, of what I meant when I said integrated. What, what is a definition that I could get behind for what the definition? A checklist of enlightenment. Some of the myths around truth and enlightenment in the New Age. Some of the uh, some of the false teachings and traps you can fall into and then the standard critical thinking framework for interfacing with reality to access truth to learn how to think and learn how to access truth basically in alignment with reality so that's that's how that all all came to be I will now switch over to our macro section and we'll get into last bit on Unabomber. Actually, just one question out loud, I'm curious. What would you think would be the answer if you surveyed 10 year olds um, in your hometown when you were 10 about the nature of right and wrong and the nature of truth? Would they have consistently, I think at my age at 10, I think 80, 80, 90% the answer would have been there's only one truth and and right and wrong aren't subjective. And definitely my parents age at 10, I think it'd be in the 95th plus percentile. Um, But I think today I'd be curious. I'll have to ask my own kids. But I'll be curious. I, I bet you you get a real mix. It's probably over fifty percent that will think that it that the the, the the idea of relative relative morality would come out of a conversation like that. Uh, and one little correction: I said uh, I said hypothesis in the right angle triangle. I meant to say hypotenuse. Hi-po- hypotenuse. Uh, okay, that's an interesting slip, by the way. I wonder if those. Those two-word origins, they sure seem like they're probably related. All right, let's get into this. I'm actually really looking forward to this uh, wrap-up. 161, human race at a crossroads. But we have gotten ahead of our story. It is one thing to develop in the laboratory a series of psychological or biological techniques for manipulating human behavior, and quite another to integrate these techniques into a functioning social system. The latter problem is, more, is the more difficult of the two. For example, while the techniques of educational psychology di- doubtless work quite well in the lab schools where they are developed, it is not necessarily easy to apply them effectively throughout our educational system. We all know what many of our schools are like. The teachers are too busy taking knives and guns away from the kids and, subject them and subjecting them to the latest techniques for making them into computer nerds. Thus, in spite of all its technical advances relating to human behavior, the system, to date, has not been impressively successful in controlling human beings. The people whose behavior is fairly well under the control of the system are those of the type that might be called bourgeois. But there are growing numbers of people who, in one way or another, are rebels against the system. Welfare welfare, leeches, youth gangs, cultists, Satanists, Nazis, radical environmentalists, militiamen, etc., The system is currently engaged in a desperate struggle to overcome certain problems that threaten its survival, among which the problems of human behavior are the most important. If the system succeeds in acquiring sufficient control over human behavior quickly enough, it will probably survive, otherwise it will break down. We think the issue is more likely to be resolved within the next several decades, say 40 to 100 years. Suppose the system survives the crisis of the next several decades. By that time, it will have to, be, it will have, to have solved, or at least brought under control, the principal problems that confront it, in particular that of socializing human beings, that is, socializing in quotes, making people sufficiently docile so that their behavior no longer threatens the system. Sound familiar? That being accomplished, it does not appear that there would be any further obstacle to the development of technology and it would presumably advance towards its logical conclusion, which is complete control over everything on Earth, including human beings and all other important organisms. The system may become a unitary, monolithic organization, or it may be more or less fragmented and consist of a number of organizations coexisting In a relationship that includes elements of both cooperation and competition, just as today, the government, the corporations, and other large organizations both cooperate and compete with one another. Human freedom mostly will have vanished. He's predicting 40 to 100 years. So 40 years from late 80s is... Well, 40 years from early 80s is right around where we're at. So... Okay, human freedom mostly will have vanished because individuals and small groups will be impotent vis-à-vis large organizations armed with super technology and an arsenal. Human freedom mostly will have vanished because individuals and small groups will be impotent vis-à-vis large organizations armed with super technology and an arsenal of advanced psychological and biological tools for manipulating human beings besides the instruments of surveillance and physical coercion. Only a small number of people, I noticed this week, by the way, that Turkey has acquired a drone loaded with a machine gun that has 200 rounds. Only a small number of people will have any real power, and even these probably will have only very limited freedom, because their behavior too will be regulated, just as today our politicians and corporate exec- executives can retain their positions of power only as long as their behavior remains within certain fairly narrow limits. I actually think the term member of the board um, is a funny play on words. Uh, I always think of B-O-R-E-D when I hear that. Don't imagine that the systems will stop developing further techniques for controlling human beings in once nature. And nature. Once the crisis of the next few decades is over, don't think it's going to stop developing. And increasing control over it is no longer necessary for the system's survival. On the contrary, once the hard times are over, the system will increase its control over people and nature more rapidly, because it will no longer be hampered by difficulties of the kind that is currently experiencing. I think personally. I think the the encroachments are just. Blatantly overt now and in our face, survival is not the principal motive for extending control. As we explain in paragraphs eighty-seven to, s- to ninety, technicians and scientists carry on their work as largely as a surrogate activity. That is, they satisfy their need for power by solving technical problems. That's the schism. They will continue to do this. Imagine if 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 these types of people, which I've had professions like that, uh, channel all that good energy and ingenuity into s- their own or their peers or their community's psychological uh, transcendence, or at least uh, psychological improvement. That is, they satisfy their need for power by solving technical problems. They will continue to do this with unabated enthusiasm, and among the most interesting and challenging problems for them to solve will be those of understanding the human body and mind. And intervening in their development, for the good of humanity, of course, quote unquote. But suppose, on the other hand, that the stresses of the coming decades prove to be too much for the system. If the system breaks down, there may be a period of chaos, a time of troubles, such as those in the history has recorded at various epochs in the past. It is possible impossible to predict what would emerge from such a time of troubles, but at any rate the human race would be given a new chance. The greatest danger is that industrial society may begin to reconstitute itself within the first few years after the breakdown. Certainly. Okay, so the greatest danger is the industrial society may begin to reconstitute itself within, within the first few years after the breakdown. Certainly, there will be many people, power hungry types especially, who will be anxious to get the factories running again. Therefore, Two tasks confront those who hate the servitude to which the industrial system is reducing the human race. First, we must work to heighten the social stresses within the system so as to increase the likelihood that it will break down or be weakened sufficiently so that our evolution against it becomes possible. Second, it is necessary to develop and propagate an ideology that opposes technology in the industrial society if and when the system becomes sufficiently weakened. And such an ideology will help to assure that if and when the industrial society breaks down, its remnants will be smashed beyond repair so that the system cannot be reconstituted. The factories should be destroyed, the technical books burned, etc. That's uh, quite radical. Uh, So much better to just transcend than actually try and destroy technical books. That just seems quite wrong to me. Um, by the way, the two the two movies, um, The Giver and also I mean the future, future in the time machine. That's the one. The future in the time machine was very much like the Avatar, uh, planet. Uh, what was that called? Pandora, um, where the future civilization was, was living at one with nature. Okay, human suffering, number 167. The industrial system will not break down purely as a result of revolutionary action. It will not be vulnerable to a revolutionary attack unless its own internal problems of development lead it to very serious difficulties. So if the system breaks down, it will do so either spontaneously or through a process That is in part spontaneous, but helped along by revolutionaries. If the breakdown is sudden, many people will die, since the world's population has become so overblown that it cannot feed itself any longer without advanced technology. Even if the breakdown is gradual enough so that the reduction of the population can occur more through lowering of birth rate than through elevation of the death rate, the process of deindustrialization probably will be very chaotic and involve much suffering. It is naive to think that technology can be phased out in a smoothly managed ordered way, especially since the technophiles will fight stubbornly at every step. Is it therefore cruel to work for the breakdown of the system? Maybe, but maybe not. In the first place, revolutionaries will not be able to break the system down unless it is already in enough trouble so that there would be a good chance of it's eventually breaking down by itself anyway. And the bigger the system grows, the more disastrous the consequences of its breakdown will be. So it may be that revolutionaries, by hastening the onset of the breakdown, will be reducing the extent of the disaster. In the second place, one has to balance struggle and death against the loss of freedom and dignity. To many of us, freedom and and dignity are more important than a long life or avoidance of physical pain. Again, this is this is the wild bunch scenario. Once you once you decide that your principles are more important than a long life or the avoidance of physical pain. Besides, we all have to die sometime and it may be better to die fighting for survival or for a cause than to live a long but empty and purposeless life. That's quite well put. In the third place, it is not at all certain that the survival of the system will lead to less suffering. Then the breakdown of the system would. The system is already caused and is continuing to cause an immense suffering all over the world. Ancient cultures that for hundreds of years gave people a satisfactory relationship with each other and with their environment have been shattered by contact with in- industrial society. The result has been a whole catalog of economic, environmental, social, and psychological problems. One of the effects of the intrusion of the industrial society has been that over much of the world, Traditional controls on population have been thrown out of balance. Hence, the population explosion, with all that implies, then there is the psychological suffering that is widespread throughout the supposedly fortunate countries of the West. See paragraphs 44 and 45. No one knows what will happen as a result of ozone depletion, the greenhouse effect, and other environmental problems not yet be foreseen. And, as nuclear proliferation has shown, New technology cannot be kept out of the hands of dictators and irresponsible third-world nations. Would you like to speculate about what Iraq or North Korea would do with genetic engineering? Oh, say the technophiles, science is going to fix all that. We will conquer famine, eliminate psychological suffering, and make everybody healthy and happy. So there's a, a good reason why Bill Gates is probably the one that's promoted as the, the champion of, the, uh, of this kind of imaginary thinking. That's what they said 200 years ago. The Industrial Revolution was supposed to eliminate poverty, make everybody happy, etc. The actual result has been quite different. The technophiles are hopelessly naive or self-deceiving in their understanding of social problems. They are unaware of or choose to ignore the fact that when large changes, even seemingly beneficial ones, are introduced to society, they lead to a long sequence of other changes, most of which are impossible predict- to predict. The result is the disruption of society. So it is very probable that, the, that in their attempts to end poverty and disease, engineer docile, happy personalities and so forth, the technophiles will create a social system that are very social, social systems that are very that are terribly troubled even more so than the present one. For example, the scientists boast that they will end famine by creating new genetically engineered food plants, but this will allow the human population to keep expanding indefinitely, and it is well known that crowding leads to increased stress and aggression. This is merely one example of the predictable problems that will arise. We emphasize that, as past experience has shown, Technical progress will lead to other new problems that cannot be predicted in advance Paragraph 103 in fact ever since the Industrial Revolution Technology has been creating problems for society far more rapidly than it's been solving old ones thus It will take a long and difficult period of trial and error for the technophiles to work out the bugs of their brave new world If they ever do in the meantime It will be great suffering, so it is not at all clear that the survival of industrial society would involve less suffering than the breakdown of that society would. Technology has gotten the human race into a fix from which there is not likely to be any easy escape. The future, number 171. But suppose now that industrial society does survive the next several decades and that the bugs do eventually get worked out of the system so that it functions smoothly. What kind of system will it be? we will consider several possibilities. By the way, I you know, here's where the morality conversation comes into the technology conversation. There's no possible way when you've got the people that are being raised with zero sense of right and wrong, what's up and what's down. There's no way those people are going to be able to make uh, appropriate decisions around the impact some of these technologies could have on society. Number 172 first Let us postulate that the computer scientists succeed in developing intelligent machines that can do all things better than human beings can do them. In that case, presumably, all work will be done by vast, highly organized systems of machines, and no human effort will be necessary. Either of these two cases might occur. The machines might be permitted to make all of their own decisions without human oversight, or else human control over the machines might be retained. If the machines are permitted to make all of their own decisions, we can't make any conjectures as to the results because it is impossible to guess how such machines might behave. We only point out that the fate of the human race would be at the mercy of the machines. I think two critical points we can talk about next episode is at what point does the system start to upgrade itself and what Point is, is a system able to replicate itself. It might be argued that the human race would never be foolish enough to hand over all power to the machines. But we are suggesting neither that the human race would voluntarily turn power over, nor that the machines would willfully seize power. What we do suggest is that the human race might easily permit itself to drift into a position of such dependence on the machines they would have no practical choice but to accept all of the machines' decisions. As society and the problems that face it become more and more complex and as machines become more and more intelligent, people will let machines make more and more of their decisions for them. Simply because machine-made decisions will bring better results than man-made ones. Eventually, A stage may be reached at which the decisions necessary to keep the system running will be so complex that human beings will be incapable of making them intelligently. At that stage, the machines will be in effective control. People won't be able to just turn the machines off because they'll be so dependent on them that turning them off would amount to suicide. On the other hand, it's possible that human control over the machines may be retained. In that case, the average man may have control over certain private machines of his own, such as his car, or his personal computer, but control over large systems of machines will be in the hands of a tiny elite, just as it is today, but with two differences. Due to improved techniques, the elite will have greater control over the masses and because human, human work will no longer be necessary, the masses will be superfluous, a useless burden on the system. If the elite is ruthless, they may simply decide to exterminate the mass of humanity. If they are humane, they may use propaganda or other psychological or biological techniques to reduce the birth rate until the mass of humanity becomes extinct, leaving the world to the elite. Or, if the elite consists of soft-hearted liberals, they may decide to play the role of good shepherds to the rest of the human race. They will see to it that everyone's physical needs are satisfied, that all children are raised under psychologically hygienic conditions that everyone who has a wholesome hobby to keep him busy and that anyone who may become dissatisfied undergoes quote-unquote treatment to cure his quote-unquote problem. Uh, Makes me think of Kenya West. Of course, life will be so purposeless that people will have to be biologically or psychologically engineered either to remove their need for power process or to make them sublimate their drive for power into some harmless hobby. These engineering human beings, engineered human beings may be happy in such a society, but they most certainly will not be free. They will have been reduced to the status of domestic animals. Exactly. But suppose now the computer scientists do not succeed in developing artificial intelligence so that human work remains necessary. Even so, machines will take care of more and more of the simpler tasks so that there will be an increasing surplus of human workers at the lower levels of ability. We see this happening already. There are many people who find it difficult or impossible to get work because, for intellectual or psychological reasons, they cannot acquire the level of training necessary to make themselves useful in the present system. On those who are on those who are employed, ever increasing demands will be placed. They will need more and more training, more and more ability, will have ever more reliable c- conforming and docile because they will be more and more like cells of a giant organism. Their tasks will be increasingly specialized so that their work will be, in a sense, out of touch with the real world, being concentrated on one tiny slice of reality. The system will have to use any means that it can, whether psychological or biological, to engineer people to be docile, to have the abilities that the system requires and to sublimate their drive for power into some specialized task. I'm gonna reread that one. The system will have to use any means it can, whether psychological or biological, to engineer people to be docile, to have the abilities that the system requires, and to sublimate their drive for power into some specialized task. But the statement that the people of such a society will have to be docile may require qualification. The society may find competitiveness useful Provided that the ways are found of directing competitiveness into channels that serve the needs of the system. We can imagine a future society in which there is endless competition for positions of prestige and power. But no more than a very few people will ever reach the top. Where the only real power is. Very repellent is a society in which a person can satisfy his need for power only by pushing large numbers of other people around the way... People out of the way and depriving them of their opportunity for power. Ooh, that's a very good statement. That's, uh, I like it. Okay, 176. One can envision scenarios that incorporate aspects of more than one of the possibilities that we have just discussed. For instance, it may be that machines will take over most of the work that is of real practical importance, but the human beings will be kept busy by being given relatively unimportant work. It has been suggested, for example, that a great development of the service industries might provide work for human beings. Thus, people would spend their time shining each other's shoes, driving each other around in taxi cabs, making handicrafts for one another, waiting on each other's tables, etc. This seems to us a thoroughly contemptible way for a human race to end up, and we doubt that many people would find fulfilling lives In such pointless busy work, they would seek other dangerous outlets, drugs, crime, cults, hate groups, unless they're biologically or psychologically engineered to adapt them to such a way of life. Um, This reminds me when I visited Cambodia. The people that fell out with the power base uh, were all in tourism because they could speak English. So we actually had a bus driver, a little minibus driver, who was a medical doctor. Uh, 177. Needless to say, the scenarios outlined above do not exhaust all the possibilities. They only indicate the kinds of outcomes that seem to us most likely but we can envision no plausible scenarios that are more palatable than the ones we've just described. It's overwhelmingly probable that if the industrial technological system survives the next 40 to 100 years, it will by that time have developed certain general characteristics. Individuals, at least those of the bourgeois type who are integrated in the system and make it run, and who therefore have all the power, will be more dependent than ever on large organizations. They will be more socialized than ever and their physical and mental qualities to a significant extent, possibly to a very great extent, will be those that are engineered into them rather than being the results of chance or of God's will or whatever. And whatever may be left of wild nature will be reduced to remnants preserved for scientific study and kept under the supervision and management of scientists. Hence, it will no longer be truly wild. In the long run, say a few centuries from now, it is likely that neither the human race nor any other important organi- organisms will exist as we know them today because once you start modifying organisms through genetic engineering, there is no reason to stop at any particular point so that the modifications will probably continue until man and other organisms have been utterly transformed. Okay, that's frightening. 178. Whatever else might be the case, it is certain that technology is creating for human beings a new physical and social environment radically different from the spectrum of environments to which natural selection has adapted the human race physically and psychologically. If man is not adjusted to this new environment by being artificially re-engineered, then he will be adapted to it through a long and painful process of natural selection. The former is far more likely than the latter. It would be better to dump the whole stinking system and take the consequences. <laughs> I like his boldness, I have to say, in terms of writing. Strategy, 180. The technophiles are taking us all on an utterly reckless ride into the unknown. Many people understand something of what technological progress is doing to us, yet take a passive attitude towards it because they think it is inevitable. But we, FC, don't think it's inevitable. We think it can be stopped, and we we give here some indications of how to go about stopping it. So this sounds like the, the nature of his book. I mean, the... Up until now is the first half of his book, and from here forward is the second half. As we stated in paragraph 166, the two main tasks for the present are to promote social stress and instability in industrial society, and to develop and propagate an ideology that opposes technology and industrial system. When the system becomes sufficiently stressed and unstable, a revolution against technology may be possible pattern would be similar to that of the French and Russian revolutions. French society and Russian society for several decades prior to their respective revolutions showed increasing signs of stress and weakness. Meanwhile, ideologies were being developed that offered a new worldview that was quite different from the old one. In the Russian case, revolutionaries were actively working to undermine the old order, then When the old system was put under sufficient additional stress by financial crisis in France, by military defeat in Russia, it was swept by the revolution. What we propose is something along the same lines. 182. It will be objected that the French and Russian revolutions were failures. But most revolutions have two goals. One is to destroy an old form of society, and the other is to set up the new form of society envisioned by the revolutionaries. The French and Russian revolutionaries failed, fortunately, to create the new kind of society which they dreamed. But they were quite successful in destroying the old one. We have no illusions about the feasibility of creating a new ideal form of society. Our goal is only to destroy the existing (laughs) form. See right there, that's quite reckless. But an ideology, in order to gain enthusiastic support, must have a positive ideal as well as a negative it must for something as well it must be for something as well as against something. The positive idea that we propose is nature, that is wild nature. Those aspects so that's kind of interesting. Like Mark Passio's teachings are natural law. And uh, Ted Kaczynski doesn't doesn't get into that exactly, but it's kind of interesting. Those aspects of the functioning of the earth and its living things that are independent of human management and free of human interference and control. And with wild nature, we include human nature, by which we mean those aspects of the functioning of the human individual that are not subject to regulation by organized society, but are products of chance or free will or God, depending on your religious or philosophical opinions. Nature makes a perfect counter-ideal to technology for several reasons. Nature, that which is outside the power of the system, is the opposite of technology, which seeks to expand indefinitely the power of the system. Most people will agree that nature is beautiful. Certainly it has tremendous popular appeal. The radical environmentalists already hold an ideology that exalts nature and opposes technology. It is not necessary for the sake of nature to set up some chimerical utopia or any new kind of social order. Nature takes care of itself. It was a spontaneous creation that existed long before any human society, and for countless centuries, many different kinds of human societies coexisted with nature without doing it an excessive amount of damage. Only with the Industrial Revolution did the effect of human society on nature become really devastating. To relieve the pressure on nature, it is not necessary to create a special kind of social system. It is only necessary to get rid of the industrial society. Granted, this will not solve all problems. Industrial society has already done tremendous damage to nature and it will take a very long time for the scars to heal. Besides, even pre-industrial societies can do significant damage to nature. Nevertheless, getting rid of industrial society will accomplish a great deal. It will relieve the worst of the pressure on nature so that the scars can begin to heal. It will remove the capacity of organized society to keep increasing its control over nature. Whatever kind of society may exist after the demise of the industrial system, it is certain that most people will live close to the nat- close to nature because in the absence of advanced technology there is no other way that people can live. To feed themselves they must be peasants or herdsmen or fishermen or hunters. And generally speaking, local autonomy should tend to increase because lack of advanced technology and rapid communications will limit the capacity of governments or other large organizations to control communities. As for the negative consequences of a limiting industrial society, well, you can't eat your cake and have it too. That's the famous line from the from a TV series. To gain, this, by the way, is the, the original form of the expression. He didn't make a mistake there. To gain one thing, you have to sacrifice another. 186, most people hate psychological conflict. For this reason, they avoid doing any serious thinking about difficult social issues and they like to have such issues presented to them in simple black and white terms. This is all good and that is all bad. The revolutionary ideology should therefore be developed on two levels. 187, on the more sophisticated level, the ideology should address itself to people who are intelligent, thoughtful, and rational. The object should be to create a core of people who will be opposed to industrial system on a rational thought out basis with full appreciation of the problems and ambiguities involved and in the pri- and of the price that has to be paid for getting rid of the system it is particularly important to tr- attract people of this type as they are capable people and will be instrumental in influencing others these people should be addressed on the ra- as a, on a rational as rational level as possible facts should never intentionally be distorted and and an intemperate language should be avoided. This does not mean that no appeal can be made to the emotions, but in making such appeal, care should be taken to avoid misrepresenting the truth or doing anything that could destroy the intellectual respectability of the ideology. On a second level, the ideology should be propagated in a simplified form that will enable the unthinking majority to see the conflict of technology versus nature in unambiguous terms. But even on this second level, the ideology should not be expressed in language that is so cheap, intemperate, or irrational that it alienates people of the thoughtful and rational type. Cheap, intemperate propaganda sometimes achieves impressive short-term gains, but it will be more advantageous in the long run to keep the loyalty of a small number of intelligently committed people than to arouse the passions of an unthinking, fickle mob, who will change their attitude as soon as someone comes along with a better propaganda gimmick. However, propaganda of the rabble-rousing type may be necessary when the system is nearing the point of collapse and there is a final struggle between the rival ideologies to determine which will become the dominant when the old world view goes under. Prior to that final struggle, the revolutionaries should not expect to have a majority of people on their side. History is made by active, determined minorities, not by the majority, which seldom has clear and consistent idea of what it really wants. Until the time comes for the final push towards revolution, the task of revolutionaries will be less to win the shallow support of the majority than to build a small core of deeply committed people. As for the majority, it will be enough to make them aware of the existence of the new ideology and remind them of it frequently." Though, of course, it will be desirable to get majority of support to the extent that this can be done without weakening, weakening the core of seriously committed people. 190, any kind of social conflict helps to destabilize the system, but one should be careful about what kind of conflict one encourages. The line of conflict should be drawn between the mass of the people and the power-holding elite of industrial society. Politicians, scientists, upper-level business executives, government officials, etc. It should not be drawn between the revolutionaries and the mass of the people. For example, it would be bad, a bad strategy for the revolutionaries to condemn Americans for their habits of consumption. Instead, the average American should be portrayed as a victim of the advertising and marketing industry, which has suckered him into buying a lot of junk that he doesn't need, and that is very poor compensation for his lost freedom. Either approach is consistent with the facts. It is merely a matter of attitude whether you blame the advertising industry for manipulating the public or blame the public for allowing itself to be manipulated. As a matter of strategy, one should generally avoid blaming the public. One, 191. one should think twice before encouraging any other social conflict than that between the power-holding elite which wields the technology and the general public over which technology exerts its power. For one thing, other conflicts tend to distract attention from the important conflicts between the power elite and ordinary people between technology and nature. For another thing, other conflicts may actually tend to encourage technologization because each side in such a conflict wants to use technological power to gain advantage over its adversary. This is clearly seen in rivalries between nations. It also appears in ethnic conflicts within nations. For example, in America, many black leaders are anxious to gain power for African-Americans by placing back individuals in the technological power elite. They want there to be, okay, it says back, but he meant black. They want there to be many black government officials, scientists, corporate executives, and so forth. In this way, they are helping to absorb the African-American subculture into the technological system. Generally speaking, one should encourage only those social conflicts that can be fitted into the framework of the conflicts of power elite versus ordinary people, technology versus nature. But the way to discourage ethnic conflict is not through militant advocacy of minority rights. See paragraph twenty one-twenty nine. Instead, the revolutionaries should emphasize that although majorities minorities do suffer more or less disadvantage this disadvantage is of peripheral significance. Our real enemy is the industrial technological system and, and in the struggle against the system ethnic distinctions are of no importance. The kind of revolution we have in mind will not necessarily involve an arm involve an armed uprising against any government. It may or may not involve politi- physical f- violence but it will not be a political revolution. Its focus will be on technology and economics, not politics. Probably the revolutionaries should even avoid assuming political power, whether by legal or illegal means, until the industrial system is stressed to a danger point and has proved itself to be a failure in the eyes of most people. Suppose, for example, that some Green Party, quote-unquote, should win control of the U.S. Congress in an election. In order to avoid betraying or watering down their own ideology, they would have to take vigorous measures to turn economic growth into economic shrinkage. To the average man, the results would appear disastrous. There would be a massive unemployment, shortages of commodities, etc. Even if the grosser ill c- effects could be avoided through superhumanly skillful management, still, people would have to begin giving up the luxuries to which they have become addicted. Dissatisfaction would grow, the Green Party would be voted out of office, and the revolutionaries would have suffered a severe setback. For this reason, the revolutionaries should not try to acquire political power until the system has gotten itself into such a mess that any hardships will be seen as resulting from the failures of the industrial system itself and not from the policies of the revolutionaries. The revolution against technology will probably have to be a revolution by outsiders, a revolution from below and not from above. 195. The revolution must be international and worldwide. It cannot be carried out on a nation-by-nation basis. Whenever it is suggested that the US, for example, should cut back on technological progress or economic growth, people get hysterical and start screaming that if we fall behind technology, the Japanese will get ahead of us. Holy robots! The world will fly off its orbit if the Japanese ever sell more cars than we do. Nationalism is a great promoter of technology. More reasonably, it is argued that if the relatively democratic nations of the world fall behind in technology while nasty, dictatorial nations like China, Vietnam, and North Korea continue to progress, eventually the dictators may come to dominate the world. That is why the industrial system should be attacked in all nations simultaneously to the extent that this, to the extent that this may be possible, true, there are no assurances that the industrial system can be destroyed at approximately the same time all over the world, and it is even conceivable that the attempt to overthrow the system could lead instead to the domination of the system by dictators. That is a risk that has to be taken, and it is worth taking, since the difference between a democratic industrial system and one controlled by dictators is small compared with the difference between an industrial system and a non-industrial one. It might even be argued that an industrial system controlled by dictators would be preferable because dictator-controlled systems usually have proved inefficient, hence they are presumably more likely to break down. Look at Cuba. 196, revolutionaries might consider favoring measures that tend to bind the world economy into a unified whole. Free trade agreements like NAFTA and GATT are probably harmful to the environment in the short run but in the long run they may perhaps be advantageous because they foster economic interdependence between nations it will be easier to destroy the industrial system on a worldwide basis if the world economy is so unified that its breakdown in any one major nation will lead us lead to its breakdown in all industrial nations some people take the line that modern man has too much power, too much control over nature. They argue for a more passive attitude on the part of the human race. At best, these people are expressing themselves unclearly because they fail to distinguish between power for large organizations and power for individuals and power for small groups. It is a mistake to argue for powerlessness and passivity because people need power. Modern man as a collective entity, that is, the industrial system has immense power over nature, and we, FC, regard this as evil. But modern individuals of small groups and of and small groups of individuals have far less power than primitive man ever did. Generally speaking, the vast power of modern man over nature is exercised not by individuals or small groups, but by large organizations. To the extent that the average modern individual can wield the power of technology, he is permitted to do so only within the narrow limits and only under the supervision and control of the system. You need a license for everything, and with the license comes rules and regulations. The individual has only those technological powers with which the system chooses to provide him. His personal power over nature is slight. 198. Primitive individuals and in small groups actually had considerable power over nature, or maybe it would be better to say within nature. When primitive man needed food, he knew how to find it, prepare edible roots, how to track game, how to take it with homemade weapons. He knew how to protect himself from heat, cold, rain, dangerous animals, etc but primitive man did relatively little damage to nature because the collective power of primitive society was negligible compared to the collective power of industrial society. 199, instead of arguing for powerlessness and passivity, one should argue that the power of the industrial system should be broken and that this will greatly increase the power and freedom of individuals and small groups. Until the industrial system has been thoroughly wrecked, the destruction of that system must be the revolutionary's only goal. Other goals would distract attention and energy from the main goal. More importantly, if the revolutionaries permit themselves to have any other goal than the destruction of technology, they will be tempted to use technology as a tool for reaching that other goal. If they give in to that temptation, they will fall right back into the trap. Because modern technology is a unified, tightly organized system so that in order to retain some technology, one finds oneself obliged to retain most technology. Hence, the, one ends up sacrificing only token amounts of technology. 201. Suppose, for example, that the revolutionaries took social justice as a goal. Human nature being what it is, social justice would not come about spontaneously. It would have to be enforced. In order to enforce it, the revolutionaries would have to retain central organization and control. For that, they would need rapid, long-distance transportation and communication, and therefore all the technology needed to support transportation and communication systems to feed and clothe poor people. They would have to use agriculture and manufacturing technology and so forth, so that the attempt to ensure social justice would force them to retain most parts of the system. Not that we have anything against social justice, but it must not be allowed to interfere with the effort to get rid of the system. 202, it would be hopeless for revolutionaries to try to attack the system without using some modern technology. If nothing else, they must use the communications media to spread their message, but they should use modern technology for only one purpose, to attack the technological system. Imagine an alcoholic sitting with a barrel of wine in front of him. Suppose he starts saying to himself, wine isn't bad for you if you use it in moderation, why... They say small amounts of wine are even good for you. It won't do me any harm if I just take one little drink. Well, you know what's gonna happen. Never forget that the human race with technology is just like an alcoholic with a barrel of wine. Revolutionaries should have as many children as they can. There is strong scientific evidence that social attitudes are, to a significant extent, inherited. No one suggests that social attitude is a direct outcome of a person's genetic constitution, but it appears that personality traits are partly inherited and that certain personality traits within the context of our society to make a person more likely to hold this or that social attitude. Objections. No one suggests that a social attitude is a direct outcome of a person's genetic constitution, but it appears that personality traits are partly inherited and that certain personality traits tend within the context of our society to make a person more likely to hold this or that social attitude. Objections to these findings have been raised, but the objections are feeble and seem to be ideologically motivated. In any event, no one denies that children tend, on average, to hold the social attitudes similar to those of the parents. From our point of view, it doesn't matter all that much whether the attitudes are passed on genetically or through childhood training. In either case, they are passed on. 205, the trouble is that many of the people who are inclined to rebel against the industrial system are also concerned about the population problems. Hence, they are apt to have a few or no children. In this way, they may be handing the world over to the sort of people who support or at least accept the industrial system. To ensure the strength of the next generation revolutionaries, the next generation of revolutionaries, the present generation should reproduce itself abundantly. In doing so, they will be worsening the population problem only slightly And the important problem is to get rid of the industrial system because once the system is gone, the world's population necessarily will decrease. See paragraph 167. Whereas if the industrial system survives, it will continue developing new technology of food production that may enable the world's population to keep increasing almost indefinitely. 206. With regards to revolutionary strategy, the only points on which... We absolutely insist are that the single overriding goal must be the elimination of modern technology and that no other goal can be allowed to compete with this one. For the rest, revolutionaries should take an empirical approach. If experience indicates that some of the recommendations made in the foregoing paragraphs are not going to give good results, then those recommendations should be discarded. Two kinds of technology, number 207. An argument likely to be raised against our proposed revolution is that it is bound to fail because, it is claimed, throughout history technology has always progressed, never regressed. Hence, technological regression is impossible. But this claim is false. We distinguish between two kinds of technology which we call small-scale technology and organization-dependent technology. Small-scale technology is technology that can be used by small-scale communities without outside assistance. Organization-dependent technology is technology that depends on large-scale social organization. We are aware of no significant cases of regression in small-scale technology, but organization-dependent technology does regress when the social organization on which it depends breaks down. Example, when the Roman Empire fell apart, the Romans' small-scale technology survived because any clever village craftsman could build, for instance, a water wheel, any skilled smith make steel by Roman methods, and so forth. so forth. But the Romans' organization-dependent technology did regress. Their aqueducts fell into disrepair and were never rebuilt. Their techniques of road construction were lost. The Roman system of urban sanitation was forgotten, so that not until rather recent times did the sanitation of European cities equal that of ancient Rome. The reason why technology has seemed always to progress is that until perhaps a century or two, Before the Industrial Revolution, most technology was small-scale technology. Most of the technology developed since the Industrial Revolution is organization-dependent technology. Take the refrigerator, for example. Without factory-made parts or the facilities of a post-industrial machine shop, it would be virtually impossible for a handful of local craftsmen to build a refrigerator. If, by some miracle, they did succeed in building one, it would be useless to them without a reliable source of electric power. So they would have to build a dam, a stream. Uh, they would have to dam a stream and build a generator. Generators require large amounts of copper. Imagine trying to make that wire without modern machi- machinery. And where would they get a gas suitable for refrigeration? It would be much easier to build an ice house or preserve food by drying or picking, as was done in the before the invention of the refrigerator. So it is clear. That if the industrial system were once thoroughly broken down, refrigeration technology would quickly be lost. Same is true of other organization-dependent technology. Once this technology had been lost for a generation or so, it would take the centuries to rebuild it, just as it took centuries to build for the first time. Surviving technical books would be few and scattered, and industrial society, if built from scratch without outside help, can only be built in a series of stages. You need tools to make tools to make tools to make tools. A long process of economic development and progress in social organization is required. And even in the absence of an ideology opposed to technology, there is no reason to believe that anyone would be interested in a rebuilding industrial society. The enthusiasm for quote-unquote progress is a phenomenon peculiar to the modern form of society, and it seems not to have existed prior to the 17th century or thereabouts. In the late Middle Ages, there were four main civilizations that were about equally advanced. Europe, Islamic world, India, and the Far East. Three of those civilizations remained more or less stable, and only Europe became dynamic. No one knows why Europe became dynamic at that time. Historians have their theories, but these are only speculation. At any rate, it is clear that rapid development toward a technological form of society occurs only under special conditions. So there's no reason to assume that a long-lasting technological regression cannot be brought about. Two one two. Would society eventually develop again towards an industrial technological form? Maybe. But there's no use in worrying about it. Since we can't predict or control events 500 or 1,000 years in the future, those problems must be dealt with by the people who will live at that time. The danger of leftism. Because of their need for rebellion and for membership in a movement, leftists or persons of similar psychological type often are unattracted to a rebellious or activist movement whose goals and membership are not initially leftist. The resulting influx of leftist types can easily turn a non-leftist movement into a leftist one so that leftist goals replace or distort the original goals of the movement. To avoid this a movement that exalts nature and opposes technology must take a resolutely anti-leftist stance and must avoid all collaboration with leftists. <laughs> Leftism is the long run con- is in the long run inconsistent with wild nature with human freedom and with the elimination of modern technology. Leftism is collectivist. It seeks to bind together the entire world both nature and human into a unif- unified whole. But this implies management of nature and human life by organized society, and it requires advanced technology. You can't have a united world without rapid transportation and communication, and you can't make people love one another without sophisticated psychological techniques. You can't have a planned society without the necessary technological base. Above all, leftism is driven by the need for power, and the leftist seeks power on a collective basis identification with a mass movement or an organization leftism is unlikely ever to give up technology because technology is too valuable a source of collective power the anarchist too seeks power but he seeks on an individual or small group basis he wants individuals and small groups to be able to control the circumstances of their own lives he opposes technology because it makes small groups dependent on large organizations some leftists may seem to oppose technology, but they will oppose it only so long as they are outsiders and the technological system is controlled by non-leftists. If leftism ever becomes dominant in the society so that the technological system becomes a tool in the hands of the leftists, they will enthusiastically use it and promote its growth. In doing this, they will be repeating a pattern that, has, that leftism has shown again and again in the past. When the Bolsheviks in Russia were outsiders, they vigorously opposed censorship and the secret police. They advocated self-determination for ethnic minorities and so forth. But as soon as they came into power, they themselves, they imposed a tighter censorship and created a more ruthless secret police than any had existed under the czars. And they oppressed ethnic minorities at least as much as the czars had done. In the US, a couple of decades ago, when leftists were a minority, in our universities, leftist professors were vigorous proponents of academic freedom. But today, in those of our universities where leftists have become dominant, they have shown themselves ready to take away from everyone else's academic freedom in, under the guise of political correctness. The same will happen with leftists and technology. They will use it to oppress everyone else if they ever get it under, under their own control. 217, in earlier revolutions, leftists of the most powerful, hungry type repeatedly have first cooperated with non-leftist revolutionaries as well as with leftists of a more libertarian inclination and later have double-crossed them to seize power for themselves. Robespierre did this in the French Revolution. The Bolsheviks did this in the Russian Revolution. The communists did it in Spain. And Castro and his followers did it in Cuba. Given the past history of leftism, it would be utterly foolish for non-leftist revolutionaries today to collaborate with leftists. Various thinkers have pointed out that leftism is a kind of religion. Leftism is not a religion in the strict sense because leftist doctrine does not postulate the existence of any supernatural being. But For the leftist, leftism plays a psychological role much like that which religion plays for some people. This is just exactly what Mark Bassio was talking about in false religions. The leftist needs to believe in leftism. It plays a vital role in his psychological economy. His beliefs are not easily modified by logic or facts. He has a deep conviction that leftism is morally right with a capital R, and that he has not only a right but a duty to impose leftist morality on everyone. However, many of the people we are referring to as leftists do not think of themselves as leftists and would not describe their system of beliefs beliefs as leftism. We use the term leftism because we don't know any better words to designate the spectrum of related creeds that includes feminists, feminism, gay rights, political correctness, etc. movements, and because these movements have a strong affinity with the old left, See paragraphs 227 to 230. Number 219, leftism is a totalitarian force. Wherever leftism is in a position of power, it tends to invade every private corner and force every thought into a leftist mold. In part, this is because of the quasi-religious character of leftism. Everything contrary to the leftist beliefs present represents sin. There you go, the religious uh, terminology again. More importantly... Leftism is a totalitarian force because of the leftist's drive for power. The leftist seeks to satisfy his need for power through identification with a social movement, and he tries to go through the power process by helping to pursue and attain the goals of the movement. But no matter how far the movement has gone in attaining its goals, the leftist is never satisfied because his activism is a surrogate activity. That is, the leftist's real motive is not to attain the ostensible goals of leftism. In reality, is motivated by a sense of power he gets from struggling for and then reaching a social goal. Consequently, the leftist is never satisfied with the goals he has already attained. His need for the power process leads him always to pursue some new goal. The leftist wants equal opportunities for minorities. When that's attained, he insists on statistical equality of achievement by minorities. And as long as any, anyone harbors In some corner of his mind, a negative attitude towards some minority, the leftist has to re-educate him. And ethnic minorities are not enough. No one can be allowed to have a negative attitude toward homosexuals, disabled people, fat people, old people, ugly people, and on and on and on. It's not enough that the public should be informed about the hazards of smoking. A warning has to be stamped on every package of cigarettes. Then cigarette advertising has to be restricted if not banned. The activists will never be satisfied until tobacco is outlawed, and after that, it will be alcohol, then junk food, etc. Activists have fought gross child abuse, which is reasonable, but now they want to stop all spanking. When they have done that, they will want to ban something else they consider unwholesome, then another thing, and then another. They will never be satisfied until they have complete control over all all child-rearing practices, and then they will move on to another cause. Suppose 220... Suppose you ask leftists to make a list of all the things that were wrong with society. Then suppose you instituted every social change that they demanded. It is safe to say within a couple of years, the majority of leftists would find something new to complain about. Some new social evil to correct because once again, the leftist is motivated less by distress at society's ills than by the need to satisfy his drive for power by imposing his solutions on society. Two, two, one. Because of the restrictions placed on their thoughts and behavior by their high level of socialization, many leftists of the over-socialized type cannot pursue power in the ways that other people do. For them, the drive for power has only one morally acceptable outlet, and that is the struggle to impose their morality on everyone. I like that. I'm going to read that again. 221, because of the restrictions placed on their thoughts and behavior by their high level of socialization, many leftists of the over-socialized type cannot pursue power in the ways that other people do. For them, the drive for power has only one morally acceptable outlet, and that is the struggle to impose their morality on everyone. 222, leftists, especially those of the over-socialized type, are true believers in the sense of Eric Hoffer's book, The True Believer. But not, not all true believers are of the same psychological type as leftists. Presumably, a true believing Nazi, for instance, is very different psychologically from a true believing leftist because of their capacity for single minded devotion to a cause, excuse me, are a useful, perhaps necessary ingredient of any revolutionary movement. This presents a problem with which we must admit we don't know how to deal. We aren't sure how how to harness the energies of a true believer. To a revolution against technology, at present all we can say is that no true believer will make a safe recruit to the revolution unless his commitment is exclusively to the destruction of technology. If he is committed also to another ideal, he may want to use technology as a tool for pursuing that other ideal. 223. Some readers may say, this stuff about leftism is a lot of crap. I know John and Jane who are leftist types, and they don't have all this totalitarian tendencies. It's quite true that many leftists, possibly even a numerical majority, are decent people who sincerely believe in tolerating others' values up to a point and wouldn't want to use a high-handed methods to reach their social goals. Our remark about leftism, our remarks about leftism, are not meant to apply to every individual leftist, but to describe the general character of leftism as a movement. And the general character of the movement is not necessarily determined by the numerical proportions of the various kinds of people involved in the movement. 224, the people who rise to positions of power in leftist movements tend to be leftists of the most power-hungry type because power-hungry people are those who strive hardest to get into positions of power. Once the power-hungry types have captured control of the movement, There are many leftists of a gentler breed who inwardly disapprove of many of the actions of the leaders, but cannot bring themselves to oppose them. They need their faith in the movement, and because they cannot give up this faith, they go along with the leaders. True, some leftists do have the guts to oppose the totalitarian tendencies that emerge, but they generally lose because the power-hungry types are better organized, are more ruthless and Machiavellian, and have taken care to build themselves a strong power base. These phenomena appeared clearly in Russia and other countries that were taken over by leftists similarly before the breakdown of communism in the USSR leftish types. The West would seldom criticize that country. If prodded, they would admit that the USSR did many wrong things, but then they would try to find excuses for the communists and begin talking about the faults of the West. They always oppose Western military resistance to communist aggression. Leftish types all over the world vigorously protested the US military action in in Vietnam, but when the USSR invaded Afghanistan, they did nothing. Not that they approved of the Soviet actions, but because of their leftish faith, they just couldn't bear to put themselves in opposition to communism. Today, in those of our universities where political correctness has become dominant, there are probably many leftish types who privately disapprove of the suppression of academic freedom, but they go along with it anyway. Thus, the fact that many individual leftists are personally mild and fairly tolerant people by no means prevents leftism as a whole forming a totalitarian tendency. 227, our discussion of leftism has a serious weakness. It is still far from clear that we, what we mean by the word leftist. There doesn't seem to be much we can do about this. Today, leftism is fragmented into a whole spectrum of activist movements, yet not all activist movements are leftists, and some activist movements, radical environmentalism, for example, seem to include both personalities of the leftist and the personalities of the un- thoroughly unleftist types who ought to know better than to collaborate with leftists. Varieties of leftists fade out gradually into varieties of non-leftists. And we ourselves would often be hard-pressed to decide whether a given individual is or is not a leftist. To the extent that it is defined at all, our conception of leftism is defined by the discussion of it that we have given in this article, and we can only advise the reader to use his own judgment when deciding who is a leftist. Uh, I mean, I would just use the religious test, you know, the faith. You could probably have a few, a short list criteria of like do you, do you subscribe to this false religion that's like a 5 or 6 point checklist 228 but it will be helpful to list some criteria for diagnosing leftism these criteria cannot be applied cut and dry in a cut and dried manner some individuals may meet some of the criteria without being leftist some leftists may not meet any of the criteria again you just have to use your judgment 229. The leftist is oriented towards large-scale collectivism. He emphasizes the duty of the individual to serve society and the duty of society to take care of the individual. He has a negative attitude towards individualism. He often takes a moralistic tone. He tends to be for gun control, for sex education, and other psychologically enlightened educational message, methods for social planning, affirmative action, multiculturalism. He tends to identify with victims. He tends to be against competition and against violence, but he often finds excuses for those leftists who do commit violence. He is fond of using the common catchphrases like racism, sexism, homophobia, capitalism, imperialism, neocolonialism, genocide, social change, social justice, social responsibility. Maybe the best diagnostic trait of the leftist is his tendency to sympathize with the following movements, feminism, gay rights, Ethnic rights, disability rights, animal rights, political correctness. Anyone who strongly strongly th- sympathizes with all of these movements is almost certainly a leftist. The more dangerous leftists, that is those who are most power hungry, are often characterized by arrogance or by do- dogmatic approach to ideology. However, the most dangerous leftists of all may be certain over-socialized types who avoid irritating displays of aggressiveness, and refrain from advertising their leftism but work quietly and unobtrusively to promote collectivist values, quote-unquote enlightened psychological techniques for socializing children, dependence of the individual on the system, and so forth. These crypto-leftists, as we may call them, approximate, approximate certain bourgeois types as far as practical action is concerned, but different from them in psychology, ideology, and motivation. The ordinary bourgeois tries to bring people under control of the system in order to protect his way of life, or he does so simply by, because his attitudes are conventional. The crypto-leftist tries to bring people under control of the system because he's a true believer in a collectivist ideology. The crypto-leftist is differentiated from the average leftist of the over-socialized type by the fact that His rebellious impulse is weaker and he is more securely socialized. He is differentiated from the ordinary, well-socialized bourgeois by the fact that there is some deep lack within him that makes it necessary for him to devote himself to a cause and immerse himself in a collectivity. And maybe his well-sublimated drive for power is stronger than that of the average bourgeois. Final note, 231. Throughout this article, we've made imprecise statements and statements that ought to have had all sorts of qualifications and reservations attached to them. And some of our statements may seem may be flatly false. Lack of sufficient information and the need for brevity made it impossible for us to formulate our assertions more precisely or add all the necessary qualifications. And, of course, in a discussion of this kind, one must rely heavily on intuitive judgment, and that can sometimes be wrong. So we don't claim that this article expresses... More than a crude approximation of the truth. 232. Two. All the same, we are reasonably confident that the general outline of the picture we have painted here are roughly correct. Just one possible weak point needs to be mentioned. We have portrayed leftism in its modern form as a phenomenon peculiar to our time and as a symptom of the disruption of the power process. But we might possibly be wrong about this. Over socialized, Types who try to satisfy their drive for power by imposing their morality on everyone have certainly been around for a long time. But we think that the decisive role played by the feelings of inferiority, low self-esteem, powerlessness, identification with victims by people who are not themselves victims is a peculiarity of modern leftism. Identification with victims by people not themselves victims can be seen to some extent in the 19th century leftism and early Christianity, but as far as we can make out, symptoms of low self-esteem, etc., were not nearly so evident in these movements or in any other movements as they are in modern leftism. But we are not in a position to assert confidently that no such movements have existed prior to modern leftism. This is a significant question which historians ought to give their attention. Okay, that's the end. I Just a couple final comments on that, but we'll, I think like i mentioned i think we can get into more reflection in the next episode i guess just on the there was a paragraph in there i'll 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 probably pull it out for the next for the for the wrap up when we talk in the next episode but there there's like it's a funny conversation going on about chipping people and people becoming like some form of android by taking on a chip right And there's like Australians, there's certain people that are just so, what would you call it? So, so uh, open to anything technological advance that they'll like line up to get their arms chipped for their national ID and that kind of thing, which is freakish. But, but anyway, that's happening. But the point I wanted to make that I liked, I think it was Michael Sarion said that you don't have to chip people. Their vibrations getting so low, and they're getting so weakened and so lost that they're already behaving like automatons. For example, like this. This is. I mean, this is all over the place. But I'll just give you, like, if you're landing on a flight into Dubai Airport, okay. <laughs> let's just say, and people uh, generally. Um, this is not a criticism of Dubai. It's. Um, the airport is stunning and modern and spacious, and the people there, the cultures are so mixed. There's such a, that, that generally there's a there's a general politeness. You know, there's not um, definitely you feel safe. you never you never I've never felt unsafe in Dubai. But anyway, I'm just using this as an example. I mean, I observed this when I used to fly into Africa for some consulting projects. I've I've been s- observing this for probably 20 years. But you've got like highly educated professionals typically f- flying in and landing, okay? Now think of all of the interactions and topics you could have on your mind when you land. It, in, from a human intelligence perspective, okay? You could be like bonding with your neighbor or learning what, what what brings them here or sharing a memory from the last time you landed in this interesting cultural city or uh, shared experience That you had in this um, airport before, or whatever, right? You could have all kinds of, or you could be talking about your family at home, talking about your business, talking about, you know, where the city's going, anything. But consistently, and this isn't, this is absolutely 110% not unique to Dubai. What happens is like a little foot race practically starts, right? I mean, it's polite, but it's like these are highly intelligent mid-career professionals and they're worried about who's going to be first to the rental car counter or who's going to be first to the taxi rank or whatever. And I just think it's so sad. I mean, how many, how many lines of computer code would it take to get a human being to behave that way? It's like three lines, right? It's so simplistic. You're operating at such a simplistic level when you're behaving that way and so they're already through social conditioning you've got people that should be highly individualized behaving exactly like an android would behave there's no human uh, intelligence happening there there's nothing unique or original or creative happening they're operating at such a base level of consciousness that it's it you don't need to chip people you don't need to chip people they're already they're already chipping themselves Through their own choices of social programming that's uh that's (laughs) just an observation i'd be happy to dig into that in in future so we'll um that was quite a journey uh anyway i think it's i think it's a lot better if we just reflect and digest and come back and debrief in the new year on this and let's uh let's cut cut on over to the to the trivia from last episode All right, now on to the trivia from last episode. Questions were, why does it make complete sense that Satanists worship death and suffering? This is my own personal question and answer, the conclusion that I've come to, so I guess it's not cut and dried or black and white, but it's it's my uh, opinion on the matter. How can you have a true personal relationship, friend or family member, or love interest that isn't rooted in service to truth, as its highest value. In number three, in the mystery traditions, what word is referred to as the lost word? Number four, what's the definition of natural law or God's law? Number five, what's the definition of natural born, a natural born human right and by corollary a wrong? And finally, number six, what is agape and where has this word gone? This satanist thing. I mean, I guess you can now, I think you can picture, I can picture anyway, a a spectrum. When you meet the mini-me satanists who are, who've got me in the center of the universe, me me meaning themselves, (laughs) stuff about me, things that are good about me, things I don't like, you know what I mean? Like if when they're just operating in the world... According to their own, uh, and it's also part of the compete and compare. These are the mini me Satanists. They have no code of conduct and they're just operating on this relative value system that's shifting all the time depending on what they think is best for them. So if you take that as kind of the mildest form of slipping towards Satanism, and then you have like the snakes in the boardroom and those kinds of things that are. That are just outwardly uh, lie, cheat, steal, backstab anything to get that next position. That's just the next stage, I think, in the in the progression. And then you've got the the Hollywood Satanists that have gone to the extreme where they they get off on uh, rituals where they torment innocent, vulnerable people and drug people and those kinds of things. So if you just think that. Uh, the mini-me Satanists are do, are living a compete and compare. And the way that they feel good about themselves isn't doing, making lasting change for humanity or isn't improving their situation or their community. They are measuring themselves based on uh, relative scores against their peers. So anything that ba- bad happens to appear, they in their mind is a scoring a little point. The, the compassion is going away. And it's like, oh, sorry, sucks to be you. So this is this uh, concept of Schadenfreude, this German word that I only learned about a year ago. <laughs> but it's perfect for this. It's that little rush of like feeling glee at someone else's setback. And all you have to do is take that to its limit and imagine how, So if if you believe in a... I think the word is existentialist. If you only think that existence is it, this is it, this is all there is, that means if someone else is suffering death and suffering, then you're feeling superior, right? Especially if you're perpetrating or witnessing or standing above and watching. So if you believe that's it, it's just the physical world, then that's, that's the limit. So you don't have that feeling of like, Oh, I've done something lasting that's going to better with humanity or I'm going to lift humanity or I've solved a problem that's going to improve my community or what have you. You don't have any of those rewards uh, or any kind of a motivation of spiritual transcendence and getting, getting uplifted by watching your own progress as you evolve. None of that is going on wh- when, you take, when you go down the mini-me Satanist track. So the only way... To feel good about yourself is to f- to see someone else suffering. So I, I to me that that actually makes logical sense. It's the logical extension to the polarity of schadenfreude in my in my my current working theory. Anyway, I'm open to uh, feedback on this. Okay, the next one is how can you have a true personal relationship, friend or family member or love interest that isn't rooted in service? To truth as its highest value. So this is a nice contrast um, to the constellation with the me in the middle. If you put a constellation with the me in the middle, and you have a shifting value system, you're floating. I mean, you're and you're only your own ups and downs. You're so vulnerable to uh, the what's happening in the in the day-to-day minutiae. Uh, and counting and tracking and measuring yourself against the ups and downs of, of climbing your own imaginary little ladder. <laughs> but if you align yourself and build your own community around yourself, when I mean community, I mean your, your kids and your intimate relationships and your, your new friends and, um, and your pursuits and your interests and eventually even your, your vocation, hopefully now you're all on the same platform you're all interacting uh in the same reality maybe is a better way to put it and so if a couple gets together i mean there was this great movie clip i i'm not going to be able to tell you the title of the film but it it was uh a recent one i think it might be a trailer with scarlett johansson as a young couple having a, a vicious argument and really uh I mean, the guy was measuring his marriage with the character played by Scarlett Johansson um, by how much it helps him advance in L.A., in the L.A. hierarchy. I mean, that's really what was coming out in the argument, and I'm sure that the wife was equally guilty of the materialism. She was just a little bit less materialistic and a little bit more altruistic. Anyway, and that's definitely pushing to the limit. But if if you don't have this idea that there's an absolute truth and an absolute reality and absolute morality, um, then you're floating. And I think in a lot of ways, you're just using each other, whether it's friends or family or or intimate partners. If you're not aligned to a higher truth, to me, you're just... It's a, it's a, it's a much more shallow level interaction. Maybe that's not quite saying it all right yet, but that's, that's the way I'm seeing it. Anyway, I I like this visual. I think it'll, I think we'll use it in the future. I've included the Eightfold Path to Buddhism as a comparison here. um, Because it's, it's very close, closely aligned. Okay. In the mystery traditions, what word is referred to as the lost word? The lost word is a concept in esoteric Freemasonry which represents a state of consciousness that has been largely lost to the majority of human beings. In order to speak the lost word, a human being must work upon themselves in order to achieve a state of equilibrium or balance between the left and right brain. My word, integrated. In such a state of consciousness, the being has come to know the self as well as the working operations of natural law, and in doing so, has come to understand the objective difference between right and wrong or as they are referred to in freemasonry light and darkness respectively in the enlightened state of consciousness by the way all of this this whole enlightenment checklist i'm not i'm not uh, saying that if you can tick those 10 you are enlightened i just i'm saying then you're on the path it, and that's the way i'm interpreting it it's, it's actually not my list right but it's but that's how i'm interpreting it The lost word, in the enlightened state of consciousness generated through the knowledge of natural law, a human being is finally able to speak the lost word, which is no. No is the word of all power. That's the Tiananmen Square individual. Only when we say no to those who would claim to be our owners, those who claim that it is they who will decide which rights we have or do not have, do we stop externalizing our power to anyone outside of ourselves, and in doing so reclaim all of our rights. Sadly, very, very few people in our world have the knowledge, care, and courage that is required to do this. That is why the all-powerful world word is considered lost. These, these graphics were probably generated at least 10 years ago. And uh, if they were lost then, imagine, imagine what, how lost they are now. Okay, this is a nice quote from uh, Martin Luther King Jr., How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? This is a natural law. A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law and natural law. Okay, that's self-explanatory. So here's a little bit more working definition on what natural law actually is. Universal, non-man-made, Binding and immutable conditions that govern the consequence of behavior. Natural law is a body of universal spiritual laws which act as the governing dynamics of consciousness. I mean, when you think about it, there's 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 physical laws, physics laws operating on everything. And we all accept the idea of karma in general. So it doesn't make any sense that, there, that, the, that the karma isn't coded somehow. As in, there's rules around what karma really is and how it works. And uh, to me, that's explained through natural law. Natural law, here's a definition. Inherent, having a basis in nature, reality, truth, not man-made or caused by humankind. An existing condition, which is binding and immutable, cannot be changed. Natural law is a set of universal, inherent, objective, non-manmade, eternal, and immutable conditions which govern the consequences of behavior of beings and the capacity for understanding the difference between harmful and non-harmful behavior. The understanding of natural law is centered upon bringing our own conscience into alignment with objective morality. This means definitively knowing which behaviors are rights because they do not cause harm to other sentient beings and which behaviors are wrongs because they do cause harm other sentient beings and he uses the justice card Uh, i think you'll remember from the top of the macro tree uh, which is just the highest governing law of our experience and so it's maybe that might sound complicated so far but it's it's as simple as possible so i'm sure we'll uh as you can imagine so i mean simplistically it's uh do not do unto others as you would not have done unto you i mean that's as simplistically as, as it can possibly be stated. But there, you know, there's some understanding about it, the mechanics of that. Next page. The law of a cause and effect. Here are the three, four, four uh, aspects of natural law. The law of cause and effect. Effect invariably follows cause. So thoughts become words and actions become causes. Before, for every action there exists an equal and opposing reaction. The law of attraction. The energy you emit is the energy you attract. Energy flows where attention goes. As you think, feel, and act, so you shall be. So you can see that some of these truths have have rippled through into the new age. They just get poisoned with some bad ideas. Uh, You reap what you sow. And do not do unto others as you would not have done unto you. Okay? Okay, so he's comparing. Yeah, okay. So the next page. Um... It's just contrasting natural law to man's law. I don't think I need to, well, you can, you can see the difference. One is objective and absolute, one is relative. One is harmonized with due to understanding, knowledge and understanding. One is complied with due to fear of punishment. One is universal, exists and applies everywhere in the universe regardless of location. One differs on location based upon the legislators. One is the eternal, immutable, exists and applies for as long as the universe exists and cannot be changed. The other one changes with time based upon the whim of legislators. You've got the different polarities. you got the positive. So the, the expression is the ge- generative polarity, what we use to create, love. So in the positive, it's love. In the negative, it's fear. The initiating expression, how it begins. In the positive, it's knowledge. In the negative, it's ignorance. In the expression of internal expression, what happens inside of us? In the positive, it's sovereignty. In the negative, it's confusion. So sovereignty, another word, another expression for that is internal monarchy. And in confusion, another word for that is internal anarchy. Um, The external expression, what happens in society? The expression on the positive is freedom. And the expression in the negative is an external monarchy. So you're, you're creating authority because you don't trust yourself because you're so confused on the inside. And the manifestation, the result we get. In the positive, it's order manifested good. And in the negative, when you try and abdicate your authority over yourself, you get chaos in the external. Finally, rights versus wrongs. Um, A natural law transgression, a living being or their property must have been harmed in order for there to be a violation of natural law or wrongdoing to have taken place. Any action which does not cause harm is a right. It's that simple. Okay, finally, the lost word of agape, agape, the best definition, agape is what we think of when we think of God's love for humanity. It's the highest form of love, more than just an emotion. It emanates from the heart and mind, an act of will rather than a feeling, selfless and expects nothing in return, above all. To me, that was played out beautifully in the film Unstoppable, which, by the way, Unstoppable is perfectly aligned, as as synchronistic as as it can be, is perfectly aligned with the themes of the chariot card. And the numbers also are, are in play there. So it's kind of interesting synchronicity there. So this is some biblical quotes of, of all places of references to agape. For this reason, the Father loves agape, me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again, John 10:17. And for God so loved the world uh, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, John 3:16. So that language, you know, is a bit of a, you know, it's uh, triggering probably for most because it's kind of been beaten to death. But I like, I think I could almost uh, sub in the words that make more sense to me at this point. One is the universe so loved its creation that he gave, that he was willing to sacrifice truth and goodness so that people could choose truth and goodness and and discover eternal life and discover the true nature of their soul. That's how I would paraphrase that now in, ter- in, in more neutral language. Okay, finally, questions for next episode. If willful ignorance and ego attachment to false knowledge are the enemies to true awakening, which is what we discussed at the beginning, what is the most powerful human expression on this path? Number two, what is considered the lost principle in esoteric traditions? Uh, And number three, what's the most dangerous belief system peddled by the new age or the new cage teachings and why? All right, thanks everybody. Uh, We'll catch you in the new year. The next episode should probably be up And hopefully we will, I've actually, during this recording, had confirmation from the filmmakers. We should be able to line line up an interview with the filmmakers of the Jordan Peterson uh, documentary. Thanks for joining us, and we'll catch you on the next one. Take care. Thanks for joining us. As always, you can find the relevant links and supporting uh, articles and books and materials over at the website synthesismeaning.me in the podcast section under podcast three. I've also included a recommended online vendor that I discovered through the Jordan Peterson podcast that I've been very happy with, uh, men's and women's over at uh, Tommy John's. Um, We've got a really good lineup coming coming together for January. got about four special guests now that have expressed an interest in joining us and uh so we'll start to to make that happen by mid-january if you're traveling uh please travel safely and enjoy your families over the break and we'll catch you on the other side 2020 take care